mishandle the ball every now and then. Now, Kentucky's only going to put Lamb at the free throw line and nobody on the line. So they're not, they don't care whether he makes it or misses if they're not going to have any problem getting back on defense. Lamb eyes the shot. It is good. It rattled in and then came back out and then went back in. 19 for him. Here comes Riddell Jones. Three seconds. Two seconds. Riddell all the way outside the one, but three on the way. Welcome to the season finale, Don. Yeah. Of season one of the Sportscasters. It is episode number 55. We are recording on December 14, 2011. I'm the host, Steve Bennett, and my co-host is Don Russ. Hey, hey. Okay, so this is what we're doing and why we would say that this is the season finale. We decided that it would be probably improper, if not mean, to try to pursue guests just a couple of <laughs> short days before Christmas and then New Year's. Right. It's kind of not cool, and I didn't want to put anyone in that position. Yeah, we've been calling this stuff season one. For a while. For a long time. Since the start. It makes sense to have a break. Probably. So why not have a break? It's the right time. It's the holidays. Uh, so after this episode, we're going to take the next two weeks off. We're going to return on January 3rd. Which is a Tuesday. 2012. Right. January 3rd, 2012, we will return. And that will be season two, episode one. Yep. And we'll make some changes. We'll maybe update some of our beds. And uh, we'll. it'll be basically the same show, but it'll be a new year. Reset my lousy pick four. Yeah, we'll be able to reset pick four. And the picks that we make today will actually be the first picks towards our record in season two. Good. But we have a great show to end season one we have we're very lucky and i feel very privileged and honored to have mike Pereira, the former head of nfl officials currently working on television for fox he writes a blog on foxsports.com and he's really active on twitter and we're gonna have a really great conversation with him about officiating about the national football league and also we have richard deitch who i thought would couldn't do a season finale without him he was actually on our second episode And I'm going to try to get Passon to be on the season premiere so that we kind of continue the tradition of him being on the first episode. He's been kind of cold towards us recently. A little bit. For whatever reason. So we'll see if it works out, but we'll try. Uh, But Richard Deitch is going to help close out the season, talk about the year that was in sports media, talk about some of the stuff that's upcoming. And also we're going to go over the bowl season with Stuart Mandel. We've been experimenting with a, a top 10 list segment, and we're going to continue that today. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the 10 best sporting events that are going to take place while we're in hiatus. Okay. So that will be pretty good too. But we got all the normal stuff, three things, pick four, five on fantasy. Let's get it all started right now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! 
Now let's move on to other business. Chris Paul was uh, traded and then not traded. And then as announced to us by Richard Deitch, he was finally again traded today, right as we were taping this. Um, it's interesting on a lot of notes. First of all... Weird story. Yeah. The NBA, we were talking off the air, the NBA locks out. Uh, nobody's making money. Players are making all the money. They lock out. Uh, they want it to be a little more maybe like football as more far competitive as balance. competitive. Right. I actually heard a quote. They want to be able to have a championship round of New Orleans versus Indiana, similar to the way the Super Bowl had New Orleans and Indianapolis. Indianapolis. And be able to draw ratings. That okay. was a quote in the lockout. So one of the first things that happens out of the lockout is one of the biggest name players in the league gets involved in a three-way deal. Going to, from one of the smallest markets to the largest to the market in the Lakers. Right. And that being what it is, whatever people think about the trade, it got vetoed. Uh, and people believe that the owners may have got the ear of... Or Khloe Kardashian. <laughs> May have got the ear of the commissioner. And David Stern has said through a spokesperson that the trade wasn't vetoed because of the owners getting his ear, but because of just, quote, basketball reasons. And that's ridiculous. Either way, um, I'm not big on vetoes in fantasy football. Unless there's clear, clear collusion. Clear collusion. Which is hard to even define at times because then if one of the players you think that's getting the worst of the deal gets the better of the deal and you vetoed it and then you look bad i mean this owner's vetoing a deal that doesn't look all that bad i just think some of the owners didn't like that one of the best teams got better but the three teams in the deal can't be the other two teams in the deal can't be too happy I can't believe it. I can't believe it happened. No one on Twitter could believe it happened. I've never seen, I've never heard of something like this. I've never heard of professional sport vetoing a trade. And it's a really bad precedent. So now every trade that happens now in the NBA is going to be compared back to that one. You know, everyone's going to say, well, why not, why not veto this trade? Right. And it just the, the Lakers just recently, a few seasons back, I think made an even more lopsided trade when they got acquired Paul Gasol from Memphis. Right, and the one, uh, if you've seen it out there, Dan Gilbert wrote Owner an email the to the commissioner, David Stern. That was pretty funny. But he even cites that trade and basically saying the only difference was uh, the Lakers took on a lot of salary, whereas in this deal they would have lost $40 million in salary. But either way, it's a bad precedent to set. You can't let the owners make the rules up for you. You can't – it's three grown men. I mean, Kalu – Sometimes vetoes in fantasy, people will argue are there to protect people from themselves, but these are own, these are general managers, professional general managers of basketball teams. You shouldn't be helping them out or and you shouldn't be end, making decisions for them. In the end, the big winner might be the Clippers and the big loser might be the Lakers. Chris Paul ends up going to the Clippers. With Blake Griffin. With Now have Blake Griffin. They have Eric Gordon. You know, they have some good pieces in place. For once, they could be maybe the best team in Los Angeles. The Lakers, they don't end up being able to make this trade. They're still forced into a position where they have to Well, he, Eric trade Gordon was included out. in the deal. He wasn't. Oh, Eric Gordon was one of the players who was signed yeah. tonight. Okay. So even still, they have a great 
So basketball, yeah, basketball is a sport of five guys, and if two of them are legit superstars, I mean, are we going to hear the argument if the Clippers go off and rattle off two or three championships that trade should have been the vetoed? trade should have been vetoed? Yeah, it opens a really bad can of worms. Yep. All right, my first thing tonight. Congratulations to Robert Griffin III, quarterback for the Baylor Bears, becoming the first ever Baylor athlete to win the Heisman Trophy. He won it 1,687 points to 1,407 points to runner-up Andrew Luck. He received 405 of the first-place votes. Andrew Luck received 247. Uh, he won. Uh, Griffin won all of the regions except for the Far West, which is won by Luck. He won the... Griffin won the Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, Northeast, South, and Southwest. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's a 9-3 and three team. We're going to talk a little bit about this with Stuart Mandel, but usually the best player from the best team wins the Heisman Trophy. But interestingly, this year, the best team, LSU, didn't have a real candidate. Sure, uh, Tyron Matthew was invited, but he was never really going to win it. He only got 327 votes. He finished fifth. Uh, so it was an interesting year for the Heisman Trophy. Robert Griffin III seems like a great kid, a good athlete, a good player. And I'm glad for Baylor. Their program's come a long way. And, you know, an interesting thing about this is Robert Griffin won this kind of late. Uh, Andrew Luck had the award almost all season, kind of stumbled later in the season. And Robert right. Griffin snuck in the back door, maybe largely due, in fact, to a game-winning play that he had against Oklahoma on national television. That play only happened because Bob Stoops made a foolish timeout. <laughs> Imagine if that didn't happen. How you know Andrew Luck might be holding the Heisman. So goes to show you know how little can change the outcome of an award like the Heisman. But I think it was a great, great pick. I think Robert Griffin III is very, very, uh, you know, it's a great. It's a, he was he well deserving, and Andrew Luck becomes one of the players to be remembered as a two-time second-place finisher. Finished second last year to Cam Newton as well. I'm sure he'll uh, he'll do all right, though. He'll forget all about that when he's drafted first overall. Yep. My number two thing this week, uh, I've never been a Crosby lover, but that's mostly je sports jealousy talking. Uh, he had an equal chance to be a Sabre as he did to be a uh, Penguin. Uh, he's just had the Sabres number time and again. He beat Team USA. Yeah. Uh, so, ruin the ice bowl yeah ruin the ice bowl but uh man this guy can't catch a break mm -mm. it doesn't seem like and it's it's kind of sad like we've brought up mark savard a lot of times and you, nice player uh good guy for the sport and he just could never get back on the ice and right now crosby's having uh, similar problems he had a concussion he suffered last year he missed almost a calendar year to the day of worth of games and now tests indicate that he doesn't have a concussion, but he is getting concussion-like symptoms, and he's going to really be out. Really strange. Yeah, yeah. At first, he was only supposed to miss two games. That was also the case last year. He right. ended up missing over 60. Yeah, he missed 10 months. It says. Uh, this is scary. It's scary because there wasn't that great of a hit. Right. It wasn't like he got blown up, Eric Lindros and Scott Stevens style. Right, right. So it's scary. He's too big of a star. He's too important to the future of the league for them to lose him at this young of an age. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope he can recover. I hope he comes back. He's a great player. He's a great diplomat for the league. And it's sad and frustrating. And I know he's frustrated. 
And I just hope that in a couple of days he wakes up and feels better and we can move on with his career. Right, and they say it just kind of uh, cropped up after a Bruins game. Uh, He developed a headache, and then later on he passed the impact test, whatever that is. It's just a concussion diagnostic test. But he hasn't traveled with the team. Uh, I guess the good news here is he didn't suffer another concussion. Right, yeah, I don't think it was any sort of... uh, well, they say here, it's unclear if one specific hit caused the symptoms to resurface, though Crosby pointed to a first-period collision with Boston's David Krejci as significant. But like you said, it wasn't this big open ice, no. Scott Stevens-like hit. Um, it's scary. I mean, I, I don't know what the NHL needs to do, but they, they clearly have a problem with concussions, it appears, and guys not being able to return from them. Football sometimes... I remember seeing a game last year where Jason Witten took a hit and they had to take his helmet because he wanted to get back in. He was pissed off. He was fuming. But the strange thing about that game was they diagnosed it as a neck injury until after the game where they diagnosed it as a concussion. So sometimes I almost feel like football is a little bit shady with it. And the Colt McCoy hit just this Thursday is a perfect example of that. Right. They're calling that a neck injury too, I believe. Uh, So football, I believe, is shady with it, whereas the NHL is real open – with concussions, you go right to the dark room if you take a big hit. They have to be cleared cleared by a non-team doctor. So they they try to do all the right things, but they have all these star players that are missing all this time. I think everyone has to use the technology that's there. Make sure you have your mouth guard in. Everyone should be wearing the best helmets. Yeah, maybe the mouth guard thing. I don't think that's required, but they should. Everyone should be wearing mouth guards. Yeah. Everyone should be using the best helmets, not just the helmets that's most comfortable. Chin straps. You know, make sure your chin strap is on loose. correctly and right. not loose. And they're going to continue to enforce the rules that were put in place to try to decrease concussions. And hopefully they'll go down in the years to come. But this is scary and sad, and I hope it doesn't end up as bad as it could. Right. Yeah, I mean, they gotta get their, they got to keep their stars on the ice. My number two thing is also hockey-related, but maybe a little bit more positive. Today is Tonight, as we record this on December 14th, is the debut of HBO 24-7 Flyers vs. Rangers. It is the second year in a row that the Road to the Winter Classic program is aired on HBO. Last year, it featured the Penguins and the Capitals. This year, it's the Flyers and the Rangers. And Greg Wyshynski, our buddy Puck Daddy, has a really great article up today. Uh, his seven um, pleas or humble requests to HBO for 24-7. There's going to be four episodes, three before the Winter Classic, one after. Uh, John Tortorella has uh, been complaining a little bit about the cameras and things like that. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how he reacts. Um, and it's just going to be a really interesting, interesting piece. There's a lot of... Players who are interesting, like Sean Avery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tortorella is going to be interesting. The Flyers have interesting players like Danny Briere and uh, Claude Giroux. And it will be a really – oh, Marty Baron. Yeah, Marty Baron. The country is going to learn how, how interesting Marty Baron is. He's one of the most popular Sabres maybe ever. And it's because it, he's, he's a backup got a personality. So. Yeah. And uh, it will be interesting to see how 24-7 is compared to last year where – Bruce Boudreaux kind of emerged for his swearing. and uh, But it, it's a great thing for the league, and I'm excited to watch it when I get home tonight. And I'm excited to, to see all four episodes. So HBO, if you're not a subscriber, find a way to subscribe or maybe borrow a friend's login 
to HBO Go. I'm going to make sure Don has mine so that Don can watch it. Hopefully HBO nice. didn't hear that. <laughs> but uh, you got to, you got if you're a hockey fan, you got to see this. Real quick, I wanted to just add to that. You brought up Greg Wachinski, and uh, not to pat our guests on the back too, too much, but, man, his site is great. Uh, you go under the read one article, and, and he does an tons hour. of them every day. Yep. And then you end up clicking, like, I was looking at the article today about, uh, or might not have been from today, but uh, Shea Weber shooting a puck into the net from the 300 level of the, the stadium as part of, like, this Bird versus Jordan-esque commercial right. they're going to run, which looks really cool. And then, like, he's got links to other videos of other guys doing crazy shots. And I, it's like Wikipedia where you find yourself on one thing, and then 10 minutes later you're on something totally different but equally cool. So uh, good job to Greg Wyshynski. All right, my last thing today uh, is a guy you can't feel sorry for, but if things haven't gone right for him, or, or nothing's gone right for this guy. But anyway, Jerry Sandusky's attorney. I don't know what this guy's trying to do. Uh, maybe he knows he's fighting a losing battle and isn't giving it his all or something, but you'd think he'd at least want to attract further clients. But <laughs> putting uh, Jerry Sandusky in front of Bob Costas isn't going to get it done. And in his latest gaffe, he uh, told his name is Joseph Amendola. Yeah, he's a knucklehead. Well, Joseph Amendola has... Uh, he held an impromptu press conference on the courthouse steps and announced that anyone who thinks Sandusky is a child molester should call, quote, 1-800-REALITY. Uh, actually, the longer quote is, anyone who is naive enough to think for a minute that uh, Tim Curley, Joe Paterno, Gary Schultz, and for that Mary Graham Spanier, the university president, were told by Mike McCree that he observed Jerry Sandusky having anal sex with a 10-year-old-looking kid in the shower at Penn State, or Penn State property, and their response was to simply tell Jerry Sandusky that don't go in the shower anymore with kids. I suggest you dial 1-800-REALITY because that makes no sense. Well, unbeknownst to him, 1-800-REALITY is the number for a gay sex line. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> so between putting him in front of Costas to get murdered, uh, his book being called, what, Touched? Or yes. something like that? Yep. And his lawyer now telling... People and, to call a gay sex line. And hiring a lawyer who has also had trouble impregnating right. a 17-year-old girl. This guy. I mean, this is a circus. And it's not to make light of it because, I mean, th it's terrible for the victims and their lives are probably damaged forever. But, wow. I mean, it, it's it's a disaster for these guys. They, they have no chance of winning this. Nope. It, not that they should. But, I mean, these guys are a punchline at this point. Yeah, it's brutal. All right, my third thing, another punchline, Albert Pujols. Oh, man. <laughs> Talk about a guy who chased the dollar, huh? Yeah, no kidding. Albert Pujols signs with the Anaheim Angels, $252 million over 10 years. He's going to make $25 million a year. Probably can't fault him. Sure, if someone offered us $25 million to do the sportscasters, we'd do whatever they wanted and sure. make sure it happened. But, you know, he's always had this kind of reputation as being a great guy. He's from the state of Missouri. He's won two championships in St. Louis. And for him to come out and say it's not about the money is a little bit crazy. <laughs> um, it's just so disingenuous. And, you know, I'm sure Cardinals fans would have appreciated a little honesty. Well, someone who is being honest is Deidre Pools, whatever his wife's name is. Uh, she went on a Christian radio station 
KLJY. She said that the Cardinals' initial offer of five years, $130 million, was an insult. And she <laughs> said that uh, um, she believes the city absolutely has been deceived by media reports regarding the Cardinals' level of commitment. Um, just ridiculous. She needs to be quiet. Nobody wants to hear from her on a Christian radio station. Uh, Cardinals fans are pissed off right now. They lost the greatest history or star in the team's history right up there at Stan Usual. And I don't blame them. It sucks. Uh, I don't like the <laughs> Angels owner. who's a kind of a really grimy kind of a guy. They also signed uh, C.J. Wilson away from the Rangers. And they're going to be a big contender in baseball next year. But you know what? If you're going to sign a big deal and it's going to be about the money, I can't wait for the day where – a player has the balls to just admit that it was about the money. <laughs> yeah, I kind of uh, picked on Brian Campbell this year for maybe going for a money grab. He got his cup, uh, so he took his money and went to the nicer weather and better tax situation. Sure he did. And maybe the girls. Have, yeah. But now they're the best team in yeah, the it's East. Worked out, so, but yeah, so that's so revisionist so, history. Right, right. So he so wasn't walking into that expecting it. Right. So Especially since who did out. he turn down? Somebody good. I can't remember Yeah, who. he turned down a much more attractive offer sure it's worked out but right that's revisionist history the uh the other thing i saw today regarding Pujols is i saw espn they had that espn nation polls and everything and they had a a poll about whether or not they thought Pujols would make the angels a contender and every single state uh on there said yes except for missouri (laughs) was the only only vote only state that voted that no, they would he wouldn't make him a contender. So it's a little bit of sour grapes there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're gonna regroup here and we're gonna come right back. We're very excited to come back with Mike Pereira from Fox. Fox. Yep. Our next guest is from Stockton, California, and is a graduate of Santa Clara University. He spent two seasons as an NFL official working as a side judge. In 1999, he was promoted to the league's director of officials. After serving in that position for five years, he was promoted to the NFL's vice president of officials. After the 2009 season, he retired from his duties with the NFL and turned to a career in media. Today, he works for Fox, blogging on foxsports.com, appearing on broadcasts of NCAA and NFL football games, clarify league rules and has even taken to twitter where he contacts with fans and answers questions a warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented and informative mike Pereira. how are you doing today mike i'm doing great thank you for having me on the show yeah we really appreciate it it's something we've been looking forward to all season i know we kind of connected on twitter earlier in the year and we decided you know to get the most bang for the buck we'd wait as the season went on and, and find a good time to get you on and i think as we're getting ready to kind of go through the stretch run of the NFL season and get ready for the playoffs, it seems like the perfect time. So we're really excited and appreciative to have you. The first thing I think I want to do is, you know, I think I want to get to know you a little bit more. Um, obviously, since you started appearing on the NFL Network with Rich Eisen, we've gotten to learn about your tendencies as an official. But I think I want to know a little bit more about you before the NFL Network, kind of how you started in officiating, how you worked your way up to the NFL. Um, why don't we just kind of start there? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I wasn't a player, um, but 
I grew up as a son of an official. My father officiated for 32 years and, um, and got as high as what was called the PCAA out on the West Coast, Pacific Coast, Coast Athletic Association that had uh, San Diego State, San Jose State, Fresno State, at the time Long Beach State, Fullerton State, that, that league out here. And um, so I, you know, I grew up around the game you know, watching him work. And then when I went to school at Santa Clara, you know, it, like a bunch of other kids, uh, I didn't have any money. And, um, you know, Santa Clara in the days the Jesuits gave you a day off in the middle of the week on Wednesdays because they felt like they 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 worked on you and gave you so much homework on Monday and Tuesday that you needed a middle of the day or middle of the week day to study. It turned out to be a party day, um, not a study <laughs> day. But I, I needed beer money, and somebody came to me and said, you know, they're officiating, um, you can officiate Pop Warner football games, peewee football games, in East Palo Alto on Sundays, and you could do three games at $10 a game. It's 30 bucks cash. Now we're talking about 1971, and 30 bucks cash, to have that in your pocket, you, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And certainly, I was only 145 pounds. That was enough beer for me to, uh, <laughs> you know, to last me for the week. And so I did it. I went out there on a Sunday, and, of course, I had, you know, been through the process with my dad a little bit about officiating, and I just fell in love with it. Um, it was amazing. I didn't necessarily think I would, but just getting out there with the kids and, um, and working with kids. Now, granted, those were young kids, uh, certainly, but just working with them and learning the rules and trying to make sure that the game was, was played fairly really energized me. And every time I walked on a, on a Pop Warner field, I mean, it felt like I got an injection of adrenaline, and, um, and, and so I knew I had to stay with it. And so I did, going through high school and, and then uh, junior college football, then major college football, and then finally uh, to the NFL in 96. NFL officials are, are part-time employees of the league, and that's always kind of been a bit of a controversy uh, you know, some people have debated whether or not uh, officials sh should maybe spend their whole uh, work week concentrating on NFL games and things like that. And we know that the NFL rulebook is, is very, very complicated. Someone who's been through the process, do you think that the NFL would benefit from full-time officials, or do you think it works just fine the way it is? Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm beginning to change my attitudes to a degree. I have always said no, um, and and... You know, my reasons are maybe a little bit complex, but, um, you know, I like the type of people. Forget about their officiating at this point. I, I like the type of people that we have brought into the league. They are very successful people in their own right, in their own business or own occupation. Um, they have learned growing up how to handle pressure outside of the uh, stadiums of football. So they, they really are prepared mentally and emotionally to take this on. Um, I, I, you're not gonna you're not gonna have that if you if you go full time. You're gonna get people who're gonna have to devote themselves to the game, you know. And I don't see it changing. I mean, the average age of when guys get into the league is 45 years old, um, and so they already have built up an occupation because certainly the on the collegiate level officiating is not full-time so you know I, I, I that was one reason there plus 
a jump to full time at this point would mean that you might lose as much as 50% of your staff you know because of what they have established on their own in their own fields and they they won't be willing to uh, give that up and then i think thirdly um i'm not so sure that that's going to solve the issues i mean they study very hard now during the week they look at films during the week and you certainly look at baseball and look at umpires who are full time and who are working upwards of 160 games and they make mistakes too and they're full time and you know people have a tendency to blast nba officials they're full time and they're working you know upwards of 80 games you know to make a football official full time when he basically is going to work 19 games a year doesn't make sense to me and so i've always been against that now i'm I'm moving a little bit in the direction because I do see a time where I would say maybe you make your referees, the 17 referees, full-time, and and maybe make them be together all year long during the week studying film together and working together as a group. That now is starting to appeal to me. That thought appeals to me, but certainly not having all 121 of them full-time. What was your outside business when you were an NFL official, and, and how did you feel about you know working your week as a, a regular citizen and then transforming into an NFL official on the weekend? Well, I did a bunch of stuff, to tell you the truth. I mean, when, once I got out of college, you know, I, I kind of I, I was a baseball player. I moved up to Alaska because I played in their summer league up there and worked for the team a little bit. Then I went through a, a medical issue early in my life in my mid-20s, and and really from that point on, just did a bunch of different stuff. I worked for an automobile leasing company. Um, I opened a golf shop where we sold golf equipment and athletic shoes. Then I got into the embroidery business, and we did corporate identity products and, and, and really kind of did a bunch of stuff until 1998 when I went to work for the league because when I went to work for the league in 1998, I essentially was doing three things. I was running this corporate identity products business with embroidery machines and silk screening machines. I was also the coordinator of officials for the Western Athletic Conference. Um, so I was in charge of their football officiating program. So that was the second job. But then my third job, you know, was on the field, the side judge in the National Football League. So, I mean, I, I really had a hectic lifestyle at that point in terms of work. And and, and when the league came to me and said, would you be interested in coming to work as a supervisor in New York, the thought of, you know, consolidating my life into one job appealed to me, along with the, uh, you know, with the thought of going to work in officiating in the National Football League. So um, that it, it made my decision to move to New York and go to work for the league fairly simple. One of the great things about being an NFL official, I, I got to imagine, is just being able to be on the field as some of the historic moments play out in front of you. Is there a game that sticks out during your career as an NFL official that you just feel so privileged to be able to have been on the field that day? Well, I, I will tell you, the game for me is, you know, I, I must tell you my career was not very long. It was only for two years. I was on the field in 96 and 97, those two years. But I don't think I will ever forget walking out for my very first, first game and and it was a preseason game i understand that but you know for an official coming out of the western athletic conference making the jump from there to the nfl um i was nervous 
Um, didn't know for sure if I could do it. Um, didn't know at that point my, my fellow crew members uh, too well. And my first game in preseason in a National Football League officiating uniform was the Patriots playing in Lambeau Field at Green Bay. Ooh. And when I walked out of the tunnel um, on the Lambeau Field and I looked at the ring of names around the stadium and I looked at the incredible crowd that was in there and the incredible fans, um, I, I, it, it just sent shivers down me. And, um, and I, it, was, it was an incredible feeling, one I'll never forget. Um, it was maybe the most pleasant experience I had even on the field because it was week one of preseason. There was no pressure. It was almost felt like a scrimmage to a degree. But that first moment walking onto Lambeau Field in my first game ever is, uh, is certainly one I'll never forget. Did you ever get into a situation where you maybe threw a flag that was controversial or didn't throw a flag that was controversial in the fact that you didn't throw it? Were you ever in, you know, were you ever in that kind of a controversy where maybe a call that you did or didn't make, I don't know if it necessarily affected the outcome of the game, but was something that you had to deal with and, and work through? You know, I, I was no different than the guys that came before me and the guys that worked with me and the guys that are working now. There are always calls that you make or don't make that stay with you. Um, and, you know, I think of my very last game, I knew it was my last game, and it was a division playoff game in, in uh, Kansas City between the Broncos and the Chiefs. And, and it was fairly early in the, in the game, and... Um, McCaffrey, Ed McCaffrey, kind of ran it down and up and, and got chucked about, boy, I'd say he probably got chucked 10 yards deep, and, um, and I froze. I did not throw the uh, illegal contact flag, which I should have thrown. Everybody seemed to see it but me, um, including Mike Shanahan, <laughs> who gave me an unbelievable earful on the sidelines. And, you know, and, and I knew it shortly after that I missed it, you know, and the play is over, and all of a sudden you're getting yelled at and you relive it in your mind and you know you missed it and you also know it's too late to do anything. And those, and those things stay with me. I mean, I think I made a couple of good calls in my career, but those don't last. I mean, those, those go away. It's just the ones that, that gnaw at you. And we're talking about 1997, you know, when I was on this field in this playoff game and, and it's, to me, it's like it was yesterday. I mean, I can almost put myself on the 18-yard line, which is where I think I was standing when the ball was snapped. And it's just those types of misses, um, you know, that really, really bother you and stay with you for a long period of time, maybe forever. You know, I think that might be just human nature because I'm, as I'm listening to you say that, I think about, you know, when, when we finished this interview and I had two others today, I won't think about the great questions I asked. I'll think about the one I forgot to ask. You know, it just seems like that's just the way we operate as people. Maybe we're a little bit too hard on ourselves. But another thing I was thinking about as I was getting ready to talk to you is the physics of the game. They change so much every year. People are stronger and, and faster. The pace of the game is bigger. And, and the NFL makes adjustments uh, to compensate with this, with rules and with changing positions of the officials and you know, I was thinking about, I have a friend who was actually an NHL official, and the way that the NHL trains their officials is different. They uh, identify people 
at a young age, they put them through a, a camp where they ref games in junior hockey and then all the way up to the AHL and then through the NFL and, and I think or through the NHL. And their officials are a lot younger than the NFL officials. Do you think that the NFL officials, you said the average age is about 45 of a first-year official. Do you think that that's going to have to come down as the speed and the physics of the game just keep moving in a direction that you almost can't see a, an end to? No, I don't think so because to me it's apples and oranges when you're talking about hockey versus football. And um, I had the privilege of knowing fairly well Steve Walcom, who was uh, head of their officiating program for a few years. And and to me, officiating in hockey is much more physical than officiating in football. I mean, you're not you're not breaking up fights. Um, certainly skating up and down a rink continuously is uh, in an arena is much more difficult than the the short spurts that that, that a football official has to uh, has has to make i i feel this way um i, I all i insisted on when i was in charge of the program is that is that my officials were healthy um because i don't think whether you can um whether it's the NBA or the NHL or Major League Baseball, I don't think you can officiate to the best of your ability unless you are 100% healthy. If you don't feel good, if you're tired, um, that, that it will affect your ability to, you know, to, to really work at the top of your game. And to me, um, in football officiating more than hockey, it's the connection between your eyes and your brains. It's a, it's a mental um, exercise, not a physical exercise. So to me, as long as you can work on that same 100-yard field that, um, you know, that the players work on and basically go in short spurts and keep in the position that you need to be in, then I don't care if you're 65 years old. Um, you know, I would rather have an older guy with good judgment and good common sense. I shouldn't say older at 65 because I'm approaching that myself, but I'd rather have a veteran guy with good common sense and good judgment than a young strapping 30 year old without the experience and the judgment. I mean, you know, to me, uh, it's just at least in our game, you know, people that say to me, you're old, your guys are old. That, that to me, doesn't make any sense. You tell me that they're out of shape and can't cover, then that does bother me, and then they shouldn't be on the field. But I think it's more of a mental exercise than a physical exercise. All right, let's get into some specifics here. I want to ask you about a couple of the rule changes that we have seen play out here in the 13 weeks of the NFL season. 14? No, 13 weeks of the NFL season here. 14. Four Lions. 13, 13 games for each team in 14 weeks. Gotcha. Ah, that's right. Okay. Uh, one big rule change uh, at the beginning of the season was the idea of moving the kickoffs up. We have seen a statistical change. There was only been eight kickoffs returned for a touchdown this year. There was 23 last year. Do you think that the league is happy with the results of this rule? Do you think that the trade-off and exciting plays has been worth it? for the um, safety of the player, which I know this rule is based on safety. Do you think the, the league will keep it the way it is, or do you think that this is something to look at in the offseason? Well, I, I don't think they can judge anything in terms of success or failure yet until the season is over and they look at the injury rate on kickoffs uh, because that, that, to me, will be the determining factor. Now, when I talked to a couple members of the competition committee before the season started, they 
they seemed to say that they were comfortable as long as 60% of all kickoffs got returned. Now, that wasn't happening in the first two-thirds of the season um, when you always would get more touchbacks even when it was back in the th- at the 30-yard line because the weather is better. Um, so it was below 60% there. Now it's coming back a bit, but my sense is is that it still won't reach that 60% return um, level that they're seeking. Now, if it doesn't, then I think the question becomes, you know, what has it taken away from the game? And, you know, it's interesting to me being on the media side and listening to people, what people have to say now, but it was near hysteria in the preseason. I mean, everybody thought it was the worst change in the uh, rule change in the world. Kick after kick became touchback and, and all of the pundits, including myself, you know, said, eh, you know, I, I respect player safety, but I think this might have changed the game too much. Um, now you look at it and you're not hearing it anymore. It doesn't seem to be as big of issue anymore. And I think there's two reasons why. I mean, I think the eight returns for a touchdown is more normal. I mean, than the 23 that you talked about last year, which was a which was a, a spike here, and I don't think something that you would look at as being the average over the last 10-year period. So I, I think there still has been um, the, the, uh, the, the returns for touchdowns, but the other interesting part is how many kickoffs are being returned, you know, from seven, eight yards deep in the end zone. I mean, and that, that itself turns into a, an exciting play. And remember, you, you, uh, you kind of penalize the kicking team to a degree by telling them that every member of the kicking team, with the exception of the kicker, could be at maximum five yards from the 35-yard line. So they have to be at the 30. So they don't get the running dead start. running start that they used to get when they used to get the running start from maybe 10, 15 yards. So it's taking them a little bit longer to get downfield. Um, I don't know for sure. But I do know this, that they, the committee, the, the, the rules committee and the owners are always very, very cautious about taking a step backwards when it comes to player safety. And if, in fact, they go back to the 30, then they're going to say that, hey, they did this because of safety reasons, and then they're going to discount its effectiveness. So if I had to guess right now, I think that this move to the 35-yard line, back to the 35-yard line, will become permanent. The other big rule from the preseason that was new and and got a lot of debate was every scoring play being reviewed. And I I think it's worked out okay during the regular season. I think the one thing I don't like about it is that they've taken away the coach's ability to challenge it. And I wonder if you think that the rule might work a little bit better if a coach would could still be able to throw the flag if he thought that the ref really should take a look at it because it's being reviewed by someone in the booth who maybe their you know their rush to get a decision in to keep the game moving they might miss something or not look at enough angles that the ref might take his time to look at if it was a challenge. Do you think the coaches should still have the ability to challenge scoring plays? Well, I mean, I think this whole notion of this rule, and by the way, I'm not a fan of it, but the whole notion of this rule change, you know, was to save the uh, coach from having to use that challenge so he doesn't get caught 
outside of the fourth quarter with no ch- outside of the two minute warning in the fourth quarter without a challenge or also save him a timeout. So if it doesn't get overturned, um, then, you know, then he loses a timeout, which could be critical at the end of the game too. So I think the intent was right. I I feel like this, um, although I have seen one or two situations, I I think that the non-biased replay official upstairs with immediate access to uh, replays and the ability to slow them down and look at them frame by frame I think he is going to make a smarter decision than a coach is going to make. A coach is going to is going to react on emotion and maybe even react on what's shown on the jumbotron, which is not necessarily um, tied to the TV to the TV broadcast. So the shot he may see in the jumbotron may not be a part of that broadcast. So I, I do think that the replay official has a lot more tools to make an unbiased decision and, and save a coach from, uh, from losing a challenge or losing a timeout or using one period. Now, that being said, you know, what I've seen a little bit too much of in my mind are useless stops um, to where they stop it when really it's pretty clear that it's a touchdown. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a coach would have challenged it even based on what he may have saw, seen on the jumbotron. And I think that has to work itself out a little bit because, you know, if something is obviously ruled a touchdown and it is a touchdown, you know, to have a – every time you stop, it's a three-minute stop. To have that three-minute uh, interruption, you know, does does affect the, the pace of the game. And, and you know, and I've, I've been to Buffalo, and I've been to Buffalo in December, and I've watched games, and – and I've always felt like there's, with all the commercial time we already have in a National Football League game, to have a bunch of three-minute stops, you know, when the weather is pretty awful there, for the people sitting in the stand, it's not very comfortable. And so I, I think that, you know, I think it's okay with the way it is, even though I'm not a fan of the rule, because I don't think the system, I don't think it was broken in the first place. But since they did it, I think they ought to just stay with that and leave the coaches out of it. You know, there was a really hard one this Sunday, a Jimmy Graham play that was initially called a touchdown and, and then was overturned. and uh, Or, no, maybe it was the opposite. It was initially not called a touchdown, and Coach Payton challenged it, and it was it stayed the same. You mentioned right. on the broadcast that it seemed like the officials had been trending towards keeping the play the same. And right. is there a reason for that? Well, I think here here's the thing with that play, and, and, and I've always said this about replay, and it was always a fear that I had in replay. And and that's that, you know, you're you're reversing a decision made on the field because of what you stop and, and video you stop and see that maybe they were an inch off, an inch when you when you freeze the video and and to me replay should be to correct the egregious mistakes that's what it should be and that's really what it started out to be and you know the the problem is you know you get into video and it's not real i mean nothing is in stop time on the field i mean it's everything is in motion and you have to remember that when you look at the when you look at video so to me you know, I, I think that they're driving the point home to the, um, you know, to the uh, referees working in conjunction, of course, with their replay official, is to 
don't overturn it unless you are absolutely sure. And to me, absolutely sure. I don't know if you remember the guy Mike Patrick who did games for ESPN yes. and does yep. some college stuff now. But Mike Patrick one time said on air in a college game um, after they went to replay, and it resonated with me, you know, really a, a ton. He said, if you go and look at a play and the first time you look at it, you see that it's wrong, correct it. If you have to go with the jog shuttle back and forth, frame by frame, to look at it to see, was this toe down, was this toe not down, then leave it on the field. Because you will always have um, you'll always have disagreement as to some thinking it should be overturned and some thinking it shouldn't, and that was the same thing with me with Graham's. You know, I mean, Joe and Troy thought that they would reverse it to a, a touchdown, and and I said no. I said no because it is so close. And a matter of fact, when when we came back, Fox came back. And they circled the toe and and uh, the and then enlarged up. it. You could actually see the spikes touched the white border area which which really proved at that point that it was an incomplete pass and so you know the whole notion to me in replay we would we could be a lot more consistent the replay officials and the referees could be a lot more consistent if you reversed the ones that jumped out to everybody as as a play that should be reversed. But if you show 50 guys in a bar the play and 25 think it should be reversed and 25 don't, then that one should be left as it is. And that's that's what I've seen a little bit of lately, and I hope the trend continues. The Sportscast is here with Mike Pereira. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, you can follow Mike on Twitter. He is at Mike P-E-R. E-I-R-A. I just want to ask you two more quick things. One is a rule that is really, really hard for fans, and it's the Calvin Johnson going to the ground and completing the catch through uh, through the ground. I think there was a play this year with Jermaine Gresham, a similar uh, circumstance. What do you think about that rule and how hard it is for fans to kind of grasp what is and what isn't a catch? Do you think sometimes the rules are guilty of being a little too complicated and that maybe we should just dial it back a little bit and use a little bit more common sense? Or do you think that all these rules have been put in place for, for specific reasons and that, you know, fans are fans and not refs for, for a reason too? You know, I have been studying a lot lately, going back and looking at rules, going back in the NFL as far as 1932 and looking at all the rule changes since then and kind of wondering you know, why? Why was the change made? I know why recent changes were made for the most part, um, but I, I've, I, I've been kind of going back to study the history of rule changes. And, and I think that the issue with the catch-no-catch catch thing right now, which has become, I think, I think it's become the most confusing rule in the books in terms of fans and in terms of maybe not officials, but in terms of coaches and players and the whole ball of wax, I think this is a, I think this is an offshoot of the replay system ruining what is a catch and what is not a catch. Um, you know, it, it, everything when you try to take out the gray area and try to make everything black and white, it it doesn't always work, and it goes against what people see with their eyes and what people sense. You know, you could go back to the tuck rule. You know, a quarterback decides not to pass the ball and he's bringing the ball back to his body, 
and the ball comes out as he's bringing it back to his body, and it's an incomplete pass. Everybody looks at that as a fumble. Even officials look at that as a fumble. But the rule has it as an incomplete pass, and it doesn't make sense. And in some case, the Calvin Johnson play doesn't make sense because the, 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 the replay rule who tried to make catch, no catch, black and white said that if you're going to the ground in the process of completing the catch before you have become a runner, then you must hold on to the ball after hitting the ground. It makes no difference if you get two feet down, three feet down, three feet, a knee, and an elbow, or three steps, a knee, and an elbow on your way to the ground, you still have to hold on to the ball. And the, 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 the problem becomes, when does that process stop? I mean, there has to be right. a stop. There has to be a point where he does become a runner, even though maybe he is falling to the ground. But it's it's so it's it's everybody is so unsure with that that even me i mean i was involved with the program for a number of years and i went through the transition beginning with the bird emmanuel play in 1999 i went into the transition of the rule and even me now i'm confused i mean when i when i look at catch no catch I'm not sure what it is anymore. I mean, and, right. and it almost frightens me when I see one come up. And, and, you know, I have gotten to the point where I've said to the league, look, at, let's just make this a non-reviewable situation and put it in the hands of the official. And if it passes the smell test, which Calvin Johnson's did, if it passes the smell catch as a catch, then leave it on the field as a catch. But, you know, they're, they, that's something they're going to have to look at again in this off season to see if they can come up with something that uh, makes a little bit more sense to everybody. I can't believe how fast our time has gone by. I could do this all day, but I do want to ask you one last thing, and, and that's just over the course of this season, you, you have uh, really opened up yourself on Twitter. Uh, you've developed a ton of followers. You're, you're very active. You you seem to enjoy the interaction with the fans. Uh, what are some pros and cons that you have noticed as you've evolved as a tweeter? Well, I would say the one con is is that I just do not feel like I have done a good enough job educating the fans about the rules of the game. Um, it's it's hard. It's a complicated it's a complicated game, and really. The only reason I got involved in the media side is because I wanted to make the game more enjoyable for the fans to watch. And, and it can only become more enjoyable if they, to me, is, is if they truly understand the rules and the interpretations. And I just, knowing by just watching the questions that I get on Twitter, I know I haven't accomplished what I set out to do. And and it's hard to do on Twitter when you have 140 characters to describe to somebody why an illegal hands to the face penalty is is treated the same whether it's offense or defense, the runner versus the tackler in 140 characters, and 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 just in a written word, it's hard to get through to fans. They don't understand that, and so I, you know, I'm I'm going to continue on and hopefully find you know, some other types of platforms to, uh, to be able to do rule seminars, um, you know, on, on either Fox or some other, 
some other station to where we could show video and talk about the rules and talk about hits on defenseless players and what that rule is and and talk about intentional grounding and show plays and 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 I and I, I think then if the fan were to understand the rules better. They may not agree with them, but if they would understand the rules better, then I think they'd have a greater appreciation for the game. And that's the con. The pro is I've had a ton of fun with people. I mean, you know, I, I think to, just to interact with total strangers like that, yeah, you get your wackos that, uh, <laughs> you know, that hide behind the shield of uh, being anonymous and say things that would be inappropriate to anybody. But for the most part, I think people appreciate the fact that you just communicate with them and that you get the ability to, you know, to answer them back directly. Sometimes I think it's fun and, um, you know, and it's almost like people, you know, take an interest in my life. I mean, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm at the airport and I'm tweeting out about the Sunday night game, people are asking me, you know, what I'm, what I'm having a drink at the bar or where am I going and, and uh, recommending restaurants. And to me, that's really been the pro of it. It's, been, it's just been a whole lot of fun. Well, you mentioned a whole lot of fun, and I can't think of many things that would be more fun than the last half hour we just spent together. I, I can't thank you enough. It's really a privilege and an honor to have you on the show. And I'd love to do it again sometime. I know you're a busy guy, but thank you very, very much, and we really appreciate it. Well, you got it. It was my pleasure. I will admit to you, it went by uh, very fast for me, too, and that means it was a, it was a fun session. Oh, that, that means a lot. Thank you very much, and hopefully we can do it again soon. You got it. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Special thank you to Mike Pereira from Fox Sports, foxsports.com, former head of NFL officials. That was a real, real treat, Don. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. I think he, I think he does a great job on uh, their broadcast. All right, what we're going to do today is we're going to continue experimenting with our top 10 list segment that we will hope we can get better at and use it to replace five on fantasy in season two. So far, we've done the top 10 Sabres goals. We've done the top 10 BCS championship games. And today, what we're going to do, since this is our last show until January 3rd, is we're going to give you a list of the top 10 sporting events during our hiatus, which is December 15th through January 2nd. So Don has number 10. Number 10 is the Champ Sport Bowl. That's uh, Florida State versus Notre Dame, Thursday, December 29th, 5.30 on ESPN. I think that might be the most interesting bowl game that isn't in the BCS. It's just two actual winning teams. It's two, de- <laughs> it's two teams that you know. You, you right, know, you right. know Florida State. You know Notre Dame. Both teams travel well, so there should be a decent atmosphere in the stadium. And, you know, it's, it's at an interesting time, 5.30 on a Thursday. Um, might not be might not be bad. Notre Dame's an interesting team too. To finish eight and four, they started really slow, so they had a nice finish to the season. Yep, and uh, new kind of atmosphere with the new coach there and everything. Number nine, an NCAA college basketball game. Number four, currently Louisville versus number three Kentucky. Uh, this game is Saturday, December thirty first uh, at noon on CBS. So New Year's Eve. I know it's a long day, but if you wake up early that day, you look for something to watch during the day, that certainly would be an interesting game. In-state rivals, interesting players, interesting coaches, Calipari versus um, 
Paterno. So that should be a great college basketball game. Number eight, the 2011-12 World Junior Championship, USA versus Canada. It's always a great game. That's also on New Year's Eve at 8 o'clock on the NHL Network. It's The NHL Network's great if you're a hockey fan, obviously. and uh, It's nice that you can watch things like this. And later in the year, the Frozen Four. Yeah, and this is in Canada, in Calgary this year. It was in Buffalo last year and was part of what got us started with the podcast was an interview with Jack Campbell, who That's was right. the goalie yep. for Team USA last year. I think he's returning as the goalie again this year. Is I, he really? If I'm not mistaken, yes. I think he will be the starter. So Where is he now? Is he in their AHL team? He's done with juniors, for sure, I, I think. You know, the, the team is in the middle of a camp to narrow down their roster. So I could be wrong about Campbell. I thought I seen – I know one thing for sure is that Andy Isles, who was his backup last year, is this year just the 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 emergency goaltender. Oh, okay. Yeah, he wasn't even welcome to the camp. But hmm. uh, we'll keep going on the list. Yeah, it's always a, it's always a great, great game. Yeah, really good. So, yeah, what a great rivalry. Canada, U.S., New Year's. All right. Number seven, opening day of the NBA season, which is kind of strange, but it is, and it's Christmas Day, and at 5 o'clock on ABC, they have games all day, but probably their best game is the Heat versus the Lakers, two of the biggest franchises that the league has. Uh, You have LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh on one side, the Lakers with their trades and not trades, the new Lakers, Kobe Bryant. Uh, Should be a decent game if you're looking for something to do around dinner time on Christmas. Number six, week 15, that's this week uh, coming up here, Monday Night Football, uh, Steelers at the 49ers. It's December 19th, obviously 8.30 ESPN. Uh, great defenses facing off against each other and two teams that could meet in the Super Bowl, I suppose. And Jack Campbell, for the record, is the starting goalie for the U.S., and this year he's playing for the Sioux Greyhounds of the OHL. Oh, okay. John Gibson is the backup who plays for Kitchener in the OHL. Hmm. And also Adam Clendenning, who's from Niagara Falls, New York, made the team. Nice. Yep. Okay. Number five. Number five, the Rose Bowl. A really good Rose Bowl this year. Wisconsin, who's 11-2, versus Oregon, who's 11-2. The game's Monday, January 2nd at 5 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. Uh, it's two contrasting styles, the defense of the, pa- of the Big Ten in Wisconsin versus the wide-open play of Oregon in the Pac-12. Should be a really good game. Number four, week 17, last week of the season where a lot of teams are mailing it in. There's uh, going to be a couple significant games, one of them being the Cowboys at the Giants. That will likely decide the division. Two really strange teams this year, both losing games they shouldn't and winning games that make them look like they're world beaters. Uh, so, yeah, Cowboys-Giants for the division most likely. Number three, I have a week 17 NFL game as well. It's the Lions versus the Packers. This could go way down the list if between now and then the Packers lose a game. But assuming that the Packers are 15-0, and it's going to be a chance to watch a team go undefeated, and that's very significant. Right. It's only happened, what, three times in the regular season? So, and only one other time did a team go 16-0, and and that was the Patriots a few years ago. So that game's a 1 o'clock game on Fox as well, so it'll be regional coverage there. Uh, but that's an interesting game, especially if the Packers are 15-0. and 0. If I should, not, it I should know this, down. the Saints and 49ers are both three-loss teams right now, right? 
Yes. Okay, so yeah, so nobody's catching the Packers, but yeah, so you're right. Uh, number two, the Winter Classic. That's uh, actually January 2nd this year, but uh, that's the Rangers at the Flyers that we mentioned earlier about uh, the 24-7 and all the good stuff leading up to it. It's just an awesome, awesome event. I was able to go to the one here, as was Steve, and it was amazing. I'm obviously biased toward the one that we had, but... It's just always the best regular season game that NHL has each year. And to see it played in the, the interesting stadiums, like ours was played at Ralph Wilson Stadium, then the following year it's played at Wrigley Field. Right. Last year it's played at Heinz Field. This year it's played at Citizens Bank Park, which is where Philadelphia Phillies play. And Philadelphia could easily be snow, and that looks incredible. Right, yeah. It HD. looked like a snow globe in yeah, Buffalo. Absolutely. So, Also the game that Crosby might have gotten injured in. Right. All right, my number one is the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl. Probably, outside of the national championship game, the best bowl game there is. 11-1 Stanford versus 11-1 Oklahoma State. If there was a plus-one system in place, this, would, this be would be one of the two games that the winner would be able to play in the plus-one game. It's Monday, January 2nd at 8.30 on ESPN. January 2nd is a fantastic day for sports, huh? You yeah. got uh, 1 o'clock, you watch the Winter Classic, and 5 o'clock, you watch the Rose Bowl, and then 8.30, you watch the Fiesta Bowl. And there's some really great players in the game. Andrew Luck, Justin Blackman should be really interesting. And uh, the number one sporting event during the Sportscasters hiatus. Real quick, uh, this is a shorter segment, but real quick, do you think there's any way that if Alabama wins the national championship game, is there any chance they have a shared title or doesn't? I asked Stuart Mandel that question, and I will leave his answer alone. So okay. if you listen on in the podcast, you'll be able to hear Stuart Mandel's answer to that question. Does he mention whether or not one team would have a better shot? Like if Stanford wins versus if Oklahoma he wins? He does. Okay, cool. Yes. So listen ahead. That's a teaser. Teaser. Good job, Don. <laughs> Way to set that up. All right. We are going to take a break, and we're going to come right back with our good buddy, Richard Deitch. Our next guest is a graduate of the University of Buffalo. He got his master's degree at Columbia University in the city of New York, and then went on to spend one year as a Knights Wallace Fellow at Michigan. He is the author of a number of children's books, has contributed to numerous newspapers and magazines such as Vibe and the San Diego Union Tribune. Currently, he writes for Sports Illustrated and SI.com, covering all things media, the Olympics, tennis, and women's basketball. His Twitter feed is one of the most followed and appreciated in the sports media, and he is making his fourth appearance today on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the great Richard Deitch. How are you doing today? It's good. The, again, the, the intro just <laughs> continues to get longer and longer, and while I appreciate that, it, uh, it is hard to... Uh, it's hard to listen to uh, your resume basically being thrown at you. Um, again, everything there is accurate, but it does, you know, when you have too many things in an introduction, I always think, like, the person they're about to bring in is kind of a, uh, a bit of a knucklehead, so I don't want anyone to think, and you absolutely can back me up on this, that I somehow planted all these uh, resume films. If you would have just introduced me as Richard Dutch from New York City, I would be as happy uh, as I am with that incredibly nice and long introduction and with that i say good day to you sir good day <laughs> you're all you always uh you always bust our chops on the intro i like it i was ready for it and you know i change it every time it's a little different every time 
That is true, and I, I uh, you know, the one, uh, the one thing that stays is the UB theme, and then everything else is a little bit of a change-up, but I respect that for sure. Well, I respect you for making time for us today. I know it's been a crazy day in the world of sports media, and the reason for that, in case people haven't been on Twitter today or just don't tend to follow this sort of thing, uh, the NFL made it known that they have extended the rights to their contracts with CBS, Fox, and NBC for nine more seasons. you want to go into a little bit of detail of what was announced today in terms of these contracts and what's different and what's the same? God, do I have to? And as we're taping this, by the way, Chris Paul has just been uh, dealt to the Clippers. Oh, my. So it's a crazy bit of, uh, of, um, of sports news. Yeah, I mean, basically, in a nutshell, the, uh, it's not something that is unexpected, but the NFL... Um, re-upped with CBS, with Fox, and with NBC. They are now going. They they um, they have a nine-year extension. So this current contract that they just signed goes from 2014 to 2022. Um, you know the, the money will be insane. I don't honestly know the exact dollar figures, but I, I'm I'm fairly certain that they got about you know seven eight percent raise. Uh, in total, the NFL. And, you know, if you want some sort of highlights in terms of what people should um, think about, um, here they are. One, the NFL Network no longer has the Thanksgiving night game. That's now going to be an NBC Sunday night football night game, even though it's going to be on Thursday night. Um, NBC also gets its own Sunday morning studio show, which will be on the new NBC Sports Network. So now they become a player in the uh, morning pregame, which I think should be interesting. Fox and CBS have a little bit of flexibility on their afternoon uh, games, their late window games, and it seems like they'll be able to uh, switch a limited number of games between each other, which is interesting, which means that Fox now will uh, could theoretically show some AFC games, and CBS could theoretically show some NFC games. So... I think the NFL seems to still try to. They're still trying to figure out exactly what that means. And CBS and Fox still retain the rights to the AFC and the NFC as they currently do. But there's going to be some flexible scheduling. Each group, CBS, Fox, and NBC, now has three Super Bowls. In the last year, uh, NBC only had two. Um, and it looks like there's a possibility and a pretty good one that a wild card game will now be on ESPN sometime starting in 2014, because it looks like now there's a free date for an ESPN um, to come in. Uh, there's also some other digital stuff. It looks like, you know, in a couple of years, maybe as soon as next year, you'll be able to, if you have an iPad or some kind of uh, iPhone, watch your Fox game um, away from your couch. So it would still be in the same market, but if you were at a Starbucks or something like that, you would download your passcode, your username and password, and you'd be able to see the Fox game on your mobile device. So that's there's probably more stuff, but as fast as I can sort of tell you, that's pretty much the rights renewal deal in a nutshell. And you did mention that ESPN would gain a wild card, and, and that's because NBC, if I'm correct, traded one of their wild card games for a divisional round game. I believe that's right, and I actually should add that the NFL Network now will have more than eight games in its schedule. So that's been an eight-game primetime slate. Um, that under the new setup, they're going to get more games. So it could be a nine-game schedule, a ten-game schedule. 
Um, and as we all know, uh, that'll still be on Thursday night. And as we all know, there's going to be another package, um, probably it's another Thursday night package that eventually is going to go up for bid. Um, what isn't clear yet is whether that would be at the sort of the beginning of the season, you know, so weeks one through eight or something else. So that's another, um, that's another big part of the deal. But again, it's just the, you know, what it really does is it cements all these places that have the NFL for essentially you're going to be watching on the same networks until 2022. So what it does is it gives the NFL and these networks um, stability with their programming. It's incredible how much the NFL can demand for their product, huh? I mean, they just, the numbers are mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, uh, the current contract that ESPN just signed, I think, was $1.1 billion. Um, before this current contract, Fox was playing like uh, $700 million or something like that. CBS, a little more than uh, $600 million. Um, I'm sure the numbers will float out um, as we, uh, you know, as we see over the uh, next couple of days. I'm even seeing reports of the broadcast deals, uh, published reports saying reaping increases of 60% over the course of the deal. So wow. basically the NFL prints money. I mean, yes. um, and the reason they do that is because there's no more guaranteed programming on television than NFL football. Um, you know, outside of like American Idol, they're, they're, the NFL is really the only sure thing. And that's the reason why they can um, demand these kind of figures because um, there's just no other programming around that gets... Um, you know, 17, 20, 25, 30 million Americans around a television set. Um, it's just unique. It doesn't seem to have a ceiling, and that's why the NFL can demand what they can demand. You know, the last time we had you on the show, it was in August, late August, and we kind of talked about what was coming up in terms of the broadcast of NFL games. And now we're at a different point of the season. We're 14 weeks in, and I guess I want to ask you, now that we've been able to watch all of these games and on all the different networks. Who do you think some of the winners and some of the losers have been this year in terms of the broadcasts and the announced teams and the pregame shows and the postgame shows and things like that? Does anything stick out as great and anything stick out as bad? Yeah, I think what sort of sticks out as really, really good has been the NFL team of Nestler and Mayock. Um, you know, the, the yes. one thing with that broadcast um, traditionally has been a lack of stability when it comes to um, the team, you know, starting with Brian Gumble to, uh, you know, last year Bob Papa um, and just the horrible Joe Theismann and Matt Millen. Um, so what this team has done is, it's, to me, it's sort of given them a solid team to build on for the next couple of years. I think they've had a really good year. I, I think Mayock is the best analyst in sports, no matter what the sport is. He does his research. He's very detailed-oriented. He picks up on things um, at least for me as a viewer, that I just don't see other analysts picking up on. It's just really like film-oriented, um, which I really appreciate. So I think those guys have had um, a terrific year. I think Michaels and Collinsworth have had another good year, but I think you can make the argument they're the best um, team going. So uh, I think that broadcast has been really good. I think John Gruden's actually improved a little bit. Um, again, there's certainly times where his uh, love of everything <laughs> sort of becomes annoying. Um, but I think he's gotten better as a broadcast. The more he's committed to broadcasting, I think he's gotten better. Um, and I, I think that's a pretty good group. I think the games they've had this year have been terrible, especially the last couple of Monday night games have just been brutal. Um, 
But, you know, overall, uh, they've improved as well, and those are sort of the national broadcasts. I'm trying, you know, the the team that, um, I'll sort of keep it positive here, the team that I think is fantastic, that I wish would get more press, because I really think it could be a number one team, but they're sort of stuck because there's just number one teams across the board, and that's Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts. And I don't know how often you've heard them, but whenever I hear those guys do a game, they just inject humor, they inject smarts, they're thoughtful, they're prepared. Um, I think Eagle is a really, really good broadcaster. That's a team I really, really like. And every time I've heard them, I think they've done really well. Now, again, you know, somebody might say, you're out of your mind, I think that team is terrible, and that's what kind of makes NFL broadcasting um, fun. So I really like them. In terms of the pregame shows, you know, to be very honest, I haven't watched enough pregame shows this year. So one thing I haven't really done a lot of to um, get a feel for it. But I will say this. I find myself, and I tweeted this out, I find myself for pregame more and more watching fantasy football now, 11.30 on ESPN2, I believe, than any of the, the main pregame shows, the NFL Today, hmm. Fox, or ESPN's account. I, I, I believe that is the best, that is now the best um, pregame show because, one, they cater me as a fantasy fan, and, two, there's not a lot of shtick. It's, it's just nuts and bolts, uh, and, yeah, it's fantasy-oriented, but I just find that, like, I'm not as annoyed by any kind of laugh track in studio. I'm just not as annoyed by those guys as I am for some other um, pregame shows. Um, I don't, and I admittedly, I don't watch the NFL Network enough to really have a great opinion on them. I know there are people who really like them. So to be very honest with you, if i got to give a standout in the pregame shows, I think it's fantasy football now. I, I like Flores, Bar- Matt Berry, Matt Hasselbeck. I think that's a, I think that's a very good show. And, and in fact, I wish it would get more press. That's interesting because I think that the NFL Network's fantasy football uh, pregame show is really good, too. Uh, I don't disagree at all with uh, your assessment of the ESPN one, but I think that the NFL Network has a really good uh, fantasy show as well in the, in the, uh, in the mornings. No, it's, I mean, listen, that's a good take by you. And I just, like I said, I don't watch them enough, but I, I have heard that. And um, it doesn't surprise me. And I, and I do wonder if, one, it's they're catering to fantasy fans, which I think is obviously very important. And, you know, 30 million people or whatever play it. And two, it's just they don't have to do the kind of, you know, over-the-top, let's laugh at every joke kind of stuff. They sort of just play it straight. And for me, that just that, that's more enjoyable to me than um, to have, like, you know, Boomer Sison laughing at another bad Shannon Sharp joke <laughs> for the 7,000th time. I just find that tiring. That's not to knock those guys, per se. It's more of an institutional thing than anything else. So I, I, I'm with you, and I will check the, uh, I'll check the NFL fantasy show out more next year because maybe I'm missing out on that. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I would say is and he is our buddy and, and we care about him a lot, but Dave Damashek, as an addition to the NFL Network, I think everything he's done has really worked out. His shame report that he does every week is hilarious. Uh, his podcast is very good, and, and the uh, fantasy show really has worked out. So I think that Dave Damashek uh, is someone that should find his way onto the um, media power rankings you know, someday. But um, I'll, uh, I'll write it down here. Another suggestion for the, for the NPR. Yeah. Dave Damashek, a classic, uh, just a great, great, great guy. But uh, a couple other questions I wanted to ask you. Um, there's been a lot of talk on Twitter the last couple of weeks about these essays that Bob Costas has kind of been 
almost lecturing to us uh, in right, the half right. times of the. Um, sound, by, by the way, you sound like you're reading my colleague Jimmy Trainer's feed a lot. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy's great. We like Jimmy a lot too. He's on the show last week. But uh, yeah, what what have your thoughts been about Costas and his approach at halftime and the way he's kind of taken that platform as a way to kind of almost kind of force his values and opinions on the country? Well, I, listen, I must say I don't agree with Jimmy on this at all. Um, Jimmy okay. knows that. And a lot of times Jimmy and I, for the most part, do not agree on uh, sports media stuff, so it actually makes it uh, fun. There are some things we do agree on a lot we don't. Um, uh, listen, I, I've, I, I like Costas. Uh, I like him, I, too. I defend him um, to those who think he um, can be a little uh, – you know, overreaching, a little bit uh, flag-waving, a little flag-waving is not the right word, finger-waving, I should say, you know, occasionally smug, and I get that, and I understand that the, the sort of the, the, the essay that he did on um, being a knucklehead, yeah, I think it had a little bit of the elements of, like, you know, I'm standing on the mountaintop, shining down and everybody. Here's what I say, though. That said, who else would you want as a broadcaster to do important things um, like be the Olympic host, or to do the Sandusky interview, or to interview Mark McGuire upon his confession for steroids. The guy has time and time delivered, in my opinion, just professionalism, smart news judgment, journalism, reportage, and I can deal with Costas occasionally acting a little smug because of the overall and the larger is what I want in my broadcasters. He, he delivers for me exactly what I hate about the Skip Baylesses of the world and the, demo, the people who sort of just scream for the sake of screaming and don't, in my opinion, bring very much intelligence to the conversation. Um, now, that also might be part of the fact that, listen, I'm not in my 20s, and I get that if I was in that age group, uh, Bob Costas coming on the air scolding me about celebrations might tick me off. So I get that. So I'm a, from a generation which grew up on Costas, which really admires him, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I'll take the hit if you're going to say that, you know, that this guy's a, he's a Costas apologist or he likes him too much. That's fine. I, I will accept that. So that's sort of where I disagree with Jimmy on. Jimmy is very sort of big on... Um, uh, you know, he really dislikes Costas. He thinks he's just lecturing to the audience. And I think there's a great element out there, people who agree with Jimmy, maybe even more than who agree with me. I just side, uh, I side with Costas because I really respect what he's about when it comes to journalism and when it comes to quality hosting. And I can live with the occasional lecture because the totality of the guy's career, in my opinion, speaks to what I want in my broadcasters. I actually agree with you. I'm a big Casas fan, and like you said, who would you rather have at the Olympics? Probably no one. I mean, I, no. I really do think he he is the the best, and I've thought that for a long time. Yeah, he is. In my opinion, he's the best um, broadcast sports broadcaster of his generation. And then, if you extend it beyond sports, I, I think he's one of the five, um, maybe even one of the three best current interviewers in news working today. Um, and again. That Sandusky interview, oh, you sort of him. saw everything yep. that you needed to know about a great interviewer. I mean, he let Sandusky essentially bury himself by answering the questions. He was forceful. He wasn't uh, sort of over-the-top proselytizing. So um, I got a lot of respect for Bob Costas. Again, it, nobody's perfect. There is no perfect broadcaster. Even the broadcasters I really like occasionally do some nonsensical stuff. But, you know, if you're asking me who I want on the floor on my team, 
that's a guy I want on the floor with me. In the current edition of Sports Illustrated, the magazine, there's a, a really fantastic this year in sports media article that was a combination of a bunch of different John Wertheim contributed to it. You contributed to it. Um, some other names I've seen, I think, were, uh, let's see, who else? Well, whatever, you get the idea. But there's some Yeah, really right. This, you're talking about the year in sports media. Yeah. This is a very good uh, editor, Adam Duerson, uh, uh, put that together. And, yeah, pretty, I think grabbed probably maybe 20, 25 people to work on that. Yeah, and it, it turned out really great. There's a bunch of different things in here that they highlight, including something that is coming back tonight, and that is the 24-7 uh, this, in the magazine, you focus on last year's Penguins and Capitals, but that's going to start again in HBO tonight for the upcoming Winter Classic between the Rangers and the Flyers. Do you think that um, this kind of programming, this 24-7, this documentary-style approach to sports programming is going to get more and more popular? There's been different examples of it besides the 24-7s. Uh, you know, there's the hard knocks, and there's the 24-7 with the boxing, and now with the hockey, and... Showtime did a show with the uh, San Francisco Giants, and I really think that that kind of sports broadcasting is, is really cutting edge and interesting and, and really part of the future of sports media. Do you agree or disagree, and how do you feel about that kind of programming? Yeah, I think you answer your own question. I think it's sort of, that's not even the future, it's sort of, it's the present, and I think it's great. Um, the whole key is, can you get access? You know, can you, the great thing about 24-7 is that the league's behind it. So the league basically is telling these organizations, HBO's camera's going to be in there, and you've got to deal with that. I know the Rangers coach, John Tortorella, is not particularly happy with that, but hey, that's part of how you sell the league. So I think it's fantastic. I mean, Hard Knocks made Rex Ryan a national figure. He was a, sort of a local figure, um, very boisterous and stuff, but that sort of changed the equation on him. Um, and as long as you, you, know, you feel that the documentarians are really giving you an honest look inside the organization, it's not just sort of like... Uh, um, you know, NHL PR spoon-fed stuff. Um, I think it's great. I mean, I like seeing when God, like Bruce Boudreaux when he was cursing last year with the Caps. Yeah. Like, yeah, it might have been gratuitous, but it was honest. Like, uh, you know what? Coaches curse when it comes to pre-games uh, and halftime and post-game. So I like that kind of stuff. And, yeah, maybe these guys are playing up for the cameras a little bit. In fact, I'm sure they are. But there's, a, you know, there's an element of truth to that, uh, to what's going on there. So I think it's fantastic. Um the Giants one was good. It wasn't great. Um, I thought the 24-7 last year was awesome uh, because HBO just does an amazing job. They just know how to do documentaries. Um, I think some of the things that ESPN has done in the past have been pretty good. So as long as you get the right um, sort of executive producers behind it conceptually, um, I think it's fantastic. You know, the downside for the leagues, obviously, is you could get embarrassed. But the, to me, the upside is so much greater because it's incredible publicity. And there was a reason why there was so much uh, anticipation for last year's Winter Classic. And the reason was because of 24-7. Uh, um, and the same thing with those boxing matches when they do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes the fight doesn't even come close to the buildup of the HBO 24-7 show. So I think it's great. Um, it's the present. It's certainly the present. I have no doubt it will be the future, and it really only comes down to whether leagues will allow um, will allow cameras and networks into the locker rooms and into the facilities. And if they can, do, and if they do, and the NHL has been very good about this, um, I think it's great for fans. I think it's great programming. You know, another thing that this year in sports media article and the current Sports Illustrated did a great job of is kind of talking about all the great books that came out the very first time that we had you on the show. You mentioned to us that we really had to get 
in contact with John Wertheim about his great book that was going to be coming out called Scorecasting. And yep. since then, uh, John Wertheim and, uh, and the sportscaster have had a great relationship. He's been on six, seven times. Wow, six, yeah. seven. And I hear you, 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 you're very in a tank, it, feels, it seems like, for Lee Jenkins. Uh, that, Jenkins, that I see, Jenkins I, clearly you like Wertheim, but it seems to me more than anyone else, <laughs> you guys are kind of the, you're, you're the, like leading the Lee Jenkins fan club. We love Is that Jenkins. fair to say? Love him, love him. He's the best. He's the nicest he guy, guy in sports media. He may. He. I mean, it's impossible to say who the best working sports writer is now because it's all uh, conjecture and it, there is no right answer. But I will say this about Lee, who is a really good guy. I don't. I'm not sure there is a, a sports writer in the country who has had a better year than Lee Jenkins. Literally every piece the guy has done this year has been like off the chart great. Um, he has not written a bad piece this year, which is not easy to do. So uh, I'm with you, man. The guy. The guy is at the top of his game. Uh, and he's had a sensational year, at least at this place. Yeah, and he has an article in the current magazine about uh, Coach Brown, Mike Brown. So that's definitely worth reading in this week's Sports Illustrated. So yes, we love Lee Jenkins, and we are definitely in the tank for him. But I, we want, I wanted to ask you about books, and there's been so many great books in the sports media this year. Did you have a favorite? You know, I didn't read The Art of Fielding, which every person on earth has told me that I should, and that is the best uh sports book um this year you know uh i really like the espn book um but obviously i liked it because it's uh you know it's something i cover and it's uh um and i know many of the players so i thought jim miller um did just a fantastic job with that book um i'd absolutely recommend it i read robert lipsight's uh memoir which i thought was really really good too sort of gave you uh um a different take on uh sports writing for sort of legendary sports writer um for uh, the New York Times for many, many years. I'm trying to think. I liked Wertheim Scorecasting. I thought that was an excellent book. One of my colleagues, uh, Kostya Kennedy, wrote a really good book on Joe DiMaggio called 56. Um, I thought that was pretty good. We uh, love sweetness. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, you know, I'm probably like missing some of my colleagues' books, which is bad on me. But those are uh, those are the ones that stand out, at least off the top of my head. Well, you know, one book that you didn't mention, but we loved it, was Sweetness. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't. I, I I read some of Sweetness, um, and I liked what I read. I haven't read the whole book, uh, but Perlman, you know, nobody interviews more people for a book than Perlman. Um, so I have no doubt that the book is good. And Perlman's book on um, on the Cowboys um, was unbelievable. Uh, I know Jeff. I like Jeff a lot. He's uh, uh, he's an obsessive reporter, and I mean that in the best kind of way. And I admire Jeff because it, he wrote about a topic that's not very easy to write about, and he knew he was going to be criticized, but he really believes in the importance of biography and sort of painting a full picture of somebody. Um, so it's not surprising that people who actually took the time to read it, as opposed to just bash Perlman for writing it, liked Sweetness. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think there was a lot of controversy with the, with the excerpt that SI chose to run and, and the part of it that they focused on. But I, like you said, people who did read the book, and I was one of them, I loved it. I thought you did a great job. Uh, one book that I didn't like, I know you haven't been too negative, so I'll kind of take your job there, is I, I hated The Captain. By, uh, you the know, captain Connor. by Ian O'Connor. Yeah. yeah, I didn't read it. Uh, yeah, it was a bust. <laughs> that's that's right up Trainer's alley. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really a guy who's reading a lot of Yankee <laughs> biographies. Uh, although I did read uh, Tory's book, Verducci uh, Tory's book, which I did. Yeah, uh, that was good. Like a lot. I don't listen. I, I Derek Jeter has had an incredible career, um, and I think he's handled the media quite brilliantly. I don't particularly find him that interesting a individual to read. Like 
300 pages. Um, and he just doesn't give you enough. You yeah, and I, mean? I think that's, I mean, listen, he's, he's led himself exemplary. Like, I, I wish, if I was building a team, I'd want 23 guys like him. I, I just don't know if he's the great subject of uh, literature. But, you know, Connor's a very good writer. Um, so that would generally make me, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt, even with a, t- a tough subject. But, um, you know, I can understand that. I, I just, I, you know, it's, he's not the guy I'd want to spend um, a couple days with, uh, not, you know, Connor, but Derek Jeter, just because I don't find him that compelling. Uh, the calendar's getting ready to switch here from 2011 to 2012. What are you looking forward to in the world of sports media? I know that uh, the uh, Versus is going to change to the NBC Sports Network, and that's going to be something to monitor earlier in the year. Is there any sports media stories that are on your radar, any books that are coming out, any shows that were documentaries, anything like that that you're looking forward to in 2012? I'm looking forward to Craig James' Senate campaign. I'm, real, I'm hoping that <laughs> happens so I can, I can get around that because I feel like that would be an exciting thing for me to cover. No, um, I think the Olympics are going to be a huge story in 2012. Um, yep, to see how... Uh, NBC broadcasts those games to see how the ratings are from uh, London. And in particular, they've made a promise that they're going to do um, uh, at least someplace everything is going to be live, you know, on the, either on the website or someplace right. else. So I'll be really interested to see um, how that plays out. Um, in terms of other sports media stuff, I'm very interested in uh, LeBron uh, and the NBA and what kind of ratings they're going to get. The NBA came off an incredible season of ratings. Uh, 17 mil, average 17 million uh, per game for the NBA Finals. I think they might have got 30 million for the last game. So um, I'm really interested to see how people, if and how people come back to the NBA, and I think they will. Um, but I guess we'll get a sense of um, of just how much and how fast they will uh, um, they'll do that. Um, I'm curious to see, uh, you know, how my colleague Joe Posnanski writes the the Joe Paterno book. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's delivering that until 2013. Um, so that's something, um, that's something uh, I'll be interested in. I'll tell you this in relation to that. Um, this is something to watch, and it's already started. I think in the next 12 months, you're going to see a lot of newspapers, a lot of television networks, whether it's ESPN and other places that do journalism, you're going to see them under, uh, uncovering a lot of sexual abuse um, stories among athletes. Um, when athletes were children, especially in youth sports, you're already seeing ESPN and other places uncover that. I, I think if the one thing that the the Paterno story and the Bernie Fine story is going to do is I think it's going to prompt uh, other alleged victims to come forward, and I think it's going to prompt um, journalists to investigate um, youth sports and college sports in this issue a little closer. So, um, so if I had to make a prediction, and it's not really a fun prediction to make, uh, I think we're going to see more of these stories come out and... Um, and get exposed in terms of books. Um, yeah, there's nothing really off the top of my head that uh, I can think of that's kind of like a uh, a must book that's coming out uh, that I got to read. You know, one of the great things about books, though, is you know things just sort of like uh, kind of emerge, and you know things uh, things emerge, and you, you sort of just want to read them. I'll tell you another thing that is interesting. We're coming up on a presidential election. And I'm going to be fascinated to see, and this is where Twitter's going to play a great role, they, it's going to be very hard for um, TV personalities not to give their take on politics, which a lot of times can get them in trouble. I'm talking about sports TV personalities. So that's something to watch, right. too. Uh, some of the people on Twitter, when the election season gets really heated, to see them give a take, and it's going to cause the ESPN PR uh, department some uh, major headaches, I believe. Well, Jeff Perlman is already an example of someone who has turned his Twitter feed 
very political. He's commented quite a bit on the debates. He's very liberal. I've noticed. Yeah, very, yeah. Well, he well, Jeff is a freelancer, so he doesn't really have to. Um, right. You know, he doesn't have to follow anybody's rules except his. Um, and he should use his feet however he wants. I can tell. I would tell this to Jeff. I don't think Jeff would care that you know you got to be. You only have to be careful because I think a lot of fans don't want to hear political opinions from sports writers and people in the sports media. So I think if you're going to do it, to me, I think you just pick your spots and you don't go over the top hammering because I think you're going to turn a lot of people off. That said, um, I am also one who believes that, listen, Twitter is your take and you should be able to uh, be able to have any kind of take you want on any kind of topic as long as it's uh, you know not uh, false or libelous or anything like that. So, um, so if nothing else, I admire Jeff for sort of standing and believing in something and putting it out there. Last thing, what about Sports Illustrated in, in 2012? Uh, I'm a big fan of the magazine. I'm a big fan of the writers. What can we expect? Uh, I know you've been the Sports Illustrated's been working for a long time on 2.0, the version of their iPad app, and I've been looking forward to that. But uh, where do you see Sports Illustrated kind of evolving in 2012? I think we're going to change the name of the magazine to Lee Jenkins. We're actually going to change <laughs> it just for you. That's no, great. I, 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 see, I, um, I think exactly what you said. I think, you know, I think we'll we'll continue to make improvements when it comes to the iPad and the digital editions. Um, hopefully, continue to uh, make our website better with uh, um, you know as much coverage as we can, including like really good feature stories and breaking news. Um, but I think in terms of you know the, the the core of the magazine remains great journalism, great storytelling. Um, but where I think you know you'll see um, changes and hopefully uh, uh, you know we're on a path where we just continue to get better at is like on the digital end where the iPad technology gets really good. Um, you know, I'm someone who does a lot of podcasts for SI, so I hope our podcast technology on the iPad gets better. Um, I think we'll be doing more with video uh, and our writers. So um, I think you'll just see us do more things in the multimedia space, but the core doesn't ever change um, because what we're about and I think what separates us is, you know, our reporting and our storytelling, and that's why it's still a great place to work is because, like, we really – you know, we really care about journalism, and we really care about like, um, you know, reporting and telling interesting stories. And that hopefully, that's still what separates Sports Illustrated from every other one, every other sports magazine. And two, it makes Sports Illustrated an interesting magazine for people still to buy um, amid a very competitive landscape with a lot of great magazines. Just as an aside, you made me think of it. Were you surprised that Heyman left? Um, no, actually, I wasn't surprised at Heyman. That's not a knock on Heyman. Um, I think, you know, when you're a base, when you're a guy who breaks news like that, when you're a newsbreaker, you're always going to get offers, um, elsewhere. He's also a guy who came to Sports Illustrated from a long career in newspapers, so I don't think John, um, had the same kind of, like, uh, attachment, uh, to Sports Illustrated, let's say, like, someone like Verducci and, um, King have had, who've been here 20 years or so, uh, or someone like myself, who, you know, this is essentially my only job as an adult. Um, so, no, I, I'm not surprised John left. I, listen, I, John is a great newsbreaker. I mean, it's a loss. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but, no, I, I'm not surprised. I think John is, um, you know, I think John works for a lot of different places. I, I think he definitely wants to continue to get his brand out there. I think he saw an opportunity at CBS where he could have more exposure on TV. Um and so, no, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not. I, and that's, again, I don't want to sound like I'm killing Heyman. I just think he's sort of made differently than some other people here who would really shock me. Like if, like, if Verducci left um, or Tim Layden left, like Scott Price left, like that would shock me because they're guys who 
have worked here for, you know, decades, I think they're really sort of like grown up and like believe in what SI is about. Um, so no, to answer you, no, I wasn't surprised to loss, but I wasn't surprised that Heyman left because he, one, he's worked for a number of places, and two, I think, um, yeah, I think he got a, I think he got a really good deal from CBS. I think he thought it would provide him uh, what he wanted, and uh, and and he took it. And uh, you know, again, the guy broke a lot of stories here, and and I admire his, uh, I admire the guy. You know, he's a good newsbreaker, man. That's a that's a real hard skill to have, and I admire that. All right, Richard Deitch, Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Richard Deitch, D-E-I-T-S-C-H. Thanks for being on the show. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, and I appreciate uh, being a second act for Lee Jenkins. Thank you. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, buddy. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. Thank you to Richard Deitch. Nothing like getting your balls busted for a half an hour because <laughs> about you're a big Lee, Lee Jenkins. Jenkins fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we love Richard Deitch. He's a great guest, and I thought that was a great segment. I really he, enjoyed that. He's our self-proclaimed PR guy. Yes, because we <laughs> bug him too much for tweets. He said, "I'm not, <laughs> what am I, your PR guy? Yeah. And I said, yes, absolutely. All right, 5 on Fantasy. Last time this year for 5 on Fantasy, I thought, I don't know about you, Don, but I liked this segment overall. Me too. I thought we've done some good things with it, and uh, we'll definitely continue it. It will be around every once in a while between now and next fantasy football season, but we'll be a every week feature only during the football season. Right, right. But uh you know, maybe around end of January, beginning of February, maybe we'll do a hockey one. You know, then maybe around baseball draft time we'll do one, get a fantasy baseball expert on to help us. It'll be around. Just it w- not it as will much. be here, right. Okay. First thing, I wanna ask you and I'll share some as well, but fantasy football is a game that can be played many ways. And the reason I like to be in more than one league is because they all seem to be different in some way. And when I join a new league, the first thing I want to know is, well, how is this different than the leagues I'm already in? Okay. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about some rule wrinkles that you think work well in some of the different leagues that you're in. Um, the one thing I I do like in the leagues, we talked a little bit about how we have a league that's an all-play league. That's an interesting way to do it. Um, it feels very fair. Uh, it's somewhat like a total points league where you're playing everybody every week, but unlike a total points league, you can't run away with it. Uh, just having one big week won't put you in the driver's seat for a long time ahead. You still, you, you're reset to zero every week. Every like week we had a guy start 20-0. and 0, Yeah, that he was He didn't me. make the playoffs. Well, I started... Oh, did you? I thought Greg started. Your brother started really strong too, but he didn't make the playoffs. Okay, no, right. maybe not twenty and zero exactly, but either way, he didn't make the playoffs. Right. So every week he can go ten and zero to zero and ten, and uh, I like that. It's interesting. I and we have the money ball aspect, which is cool. Right, where you play one team twice. To one give it. game is worth two each week, right. so it's ten and zero. Each. And I do like that because, like I said, I played in total points leagues before, where the one time I played in it. I happen to be the guy that ran away with it, but by the end of the season, there's nothing to play for. The other rule wrinkle I kind of like that has to do with that also is we're we're in a league that uh, the commissioner of the league gives out weekly monetary prizes. They're small compared to the overall prize, and the overall prize is smaller also because of it, but 
I think if you're one in ten going into weeks twelve and thirteen and have nothing to play for, it's nice that at least you can play to win a little bit of your uh, league dues back. So I, I those are two small things that I like in my leagues. Couple wrinkles that I like. I like in one league we don't have kicker and defense. I kind of like that. Yeah, I hate losing because a kicker does well. So do I. I. I just, it's just not fun. You don't put the preparation or effort into it. That said, the one of the leagues I'm in doesn't penalize kickers that miss long field goals, which is nice. If you're going to have a kicker, at least don't penalize it because the coach at halftime tries some 67 yard field goal. Now we did kickers and defense in the listeners league, so I've gotten back into it a little bit, and also in the experts league that we were in. And I kind of appreciate the aspect of if you're some people will just pick Chicago and then forget about it and start Chicago every week. Right. But if you just monitor that week after week after week, that is a way to get an edge. You know. Right. Like for example, in the listeners league, I'm gonna swap my defense this week. Yeah, I mean, that goes with what Matthew Barry has kind of always said and a lot of experts don't draft your defenses until the very last round. Because you can, if you're smart, like we ended up with a decent move in our league. I think we picked Seattle last week. Yeah, and that worked out. Turned out to be a really nice move. So if you're smart, you can play the matchups and you don't have to overpay. Like Philadelphia is probably the first defense off the board this year, and that didn't work out. Didn't work out at all. My favorite wrinkle, though, and we do this in every league that I'm a commissioner of, except for we didn't introduce it into the listeners' league this year. Maybe we'll try next year is the in idea of injury replacements. The way that we do it is if there's anyone who is on the injured list, you can start that player, but then put a disclaimer on the league message board that says if that player doesn't play, you instead start this other player on your bench. Right, and what's nice about that is sometimes you'll have a guy like Hakeem Nix, who's been kind of nicked up and banged up all year long. Maybe he plays a Monday night game, and you're not sure if he's going to go. Well, in standard leagues, you would have no choice but to either roll the dice and hope he plays or bench him. Or bench him. Uh, the way you have it set up in your leagues, which I like too, is that you put that disclaimer out there. If he doesn't play, the commissioner then will retroactively put a guy in. It's fair. It uh, People don't have to sit in front of their computer and watch injury updates. and I, I think it works well, uh, particularly for casual players. I like it. Um, Number two. Number two, uh, we both play in different leagues, some of them that have tight ends, some of them that don't require them but use them in the wide receiver slot. I think I know your answer, but which do you prefer? For a long time, I preferred to have them included because there wasn't enough good ones. It was, you know, draft Antonio Gates or um, Tony Gonzalez or Dallas Clark or forget it. Right. I think the league has changed. I think the league is in a golden era of tight ends. I think there's a lot of depth at the position, and I think it'd be more and more fun to include it. I So I've changed on that a bit. I, I've liked it since I started playing in leagues that have it. I've liked it as a separate position better, even when there's scarce. I think it adds a little bit of depth of strategy to the draft. Like, if you don't hit, if they're included with the wide receivers, it's kind of easy to look at projections of where they're going to be and how many points they're going to get, and then you just slot them right alongside the receivers. Whereas when Antonio Gates and maybe Tony Gonzalez were the only two guys that were above everybody else, or Dallas Clark maybe too, then you have to think like, man, do I take this guy in the third round? He's not going to score as many points as the wide receiver I'm going to get in this round. 
but he's going to outscore the fourth best guy by a mile. So I like the added strategy that that adds to the draft. But yeah, you're right about the tight ends now. Someone like uh, Jimmy Graham, who was everybody's sleeper and everybody expert, got this one right this year. Uh, Although then in, in the same breath, everyone loved Lance Hendricks. Well, right. So hopefully you picked the right sleeper because those were the two big sleepers in the offseason at the position. Right, but Jimmy Graham was a great example of don't get a tight end because you'll get a good one late. I mean, he turned out to be an excellent one. He'll be the number one or two off the board next year. But like you said, there's if Peyton Manning comes back, Dallas Clark's right back up there. Antonio Gates is still up there. The two guys in New England. Gronkowski yeah, and Gronk, yeah, Gronk, uh, Hernandez, Hernandez, who I've liked or I liked more at the beginning of the year, and it turned out to have been dead wrong about because he doesn't get any touchdowns. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of good tight ends now. Jermaine so. Gresham, uh, Brandon Pettigrew. Yeah, uh, definitely, it's a golden era for tight ends. So I, I think I'm going to push to include it more and more. All right, number three would be starts. Last week I did oh not that great actually. Um, I said start Andrew Dalton. If you started him, he didn't hurt you. Because he didn't have any picks, but he probably didn't help you that much. He only had 189 yards and one touchdown. I also had Richard Mendenhall. This almost worked out. He had 76 yards, which is about what I expected. And he went 0-4 at the goal line. Yeah, they literally I, gave him the ball four times to get one yard, and he couldn't do it. I'm a, I'm a Mendenhall hater. I am too now. <laughs> you can't get one yard? The week before that, he had like a real similar stat line. Like he only had 60, 70 yards, but I think he had two or three two scores. Two touchdowns. So, yeah, and so. that's what I was counting on. Right, and that's all, he, that's all he's good for. He's so average. Frustrating. My started wide receiver worked out was Percy Harvin. He had 40 yards alone rushing. He also had 10 catches and 69 yards receiving. If you had this guy in a PPR with basically standard scoring, he got you, what, 16 and 4 and 20 and 6, 26 points. Huh. So a great day for yeah. Percy Harvin. My starts this week. He's Quir- a stud, by the way. Like the last yeah, two he's weeks, awesome. he's it's amazing that a guy that small doesn't get killed out there. But he he's amazing, and they get him tons of touches. And he's a game changer. Yep. All right, at quarterback, I'm going to go with Tony Romo. Uh, he's had at least 20 points in four of the last six games. Uh, he's playing the 27th ranked passing defense this week. Um, they like to go deep, and if he can hit it. It's a great start. So I'm going to go with Tony Romo at quarterback. At running back, I'm going to go with Cedric Benson. Uh, He has a great matchup against the Rams. They're 31st against the run. So I really like Cedric Benson. And at wide receiver, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to give you a deep one and then sort of a regular one. My deep one is Demarius Thomas. Uh, In the last two weeks, he's had 31 points and 16 points respectively. Uh, they're playing the 32nd-ranked uh, team against the pass, the Patriots. The Denver receiver. That is so deep. That's a deeper play. He's probably, he could even be available in your league. Yeah. but Yeah, especially with the way Tebow Like I said, throw. 16 points and 31 points in yeah. the last two games, games that Tebow played. Right. So no reason to think that those two can't connect. But if you're not willing to be that bold or not interested in anyone that deep, I do like Santana Moss this week. Last week was his second week back from injury. He played much better. He had a touchdown and also had one call back because of a penalty. And this week, uh, the uh, Redskins played the 29th pass defense. So Santana Moss is a great play. All right, to recap my sits last week, I had Tim Tebow uh, at the quarterback, which, again, isn't maybe not the boldest thing in the world, but he does usually rush for crazy yards. That was an okay pick. The same thing, uh, if you started him, he probably didn't kill you. He got you your 49 yards rushing. And he passed for two twenty or two thirty six, a TD and a pick. So that whole day it was looking great, and he he just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, 
Yep. Uh, so not the greatest start in the world, but not the greatest sit either. My running backs sit, I went with both Carolina running backs. Again, I absolutely nailed that until D'Angelo Williams rushed for one carry, one for, carry 70 for 74 yards. yards. Uh, other than that, he would have had six carries for 13 yards, and Jonathan Seward would have had eight for 29. But they all count, so I guess I was wrong on D'Angelo Williams there. And Dwayne Bowe uh, was a good sit. He had six catches for 69 yards. Again, probably didn't kill you, but he probably didn't win you any matchups either. This week, uh, my sit, which might be a little bit bold here, maybe not, depends how you see it, but uh, Cam Newton, who's been the number one, two, three ranked quarterback all year, probably probably settling down to three behind probably Breeze and uh, Rodgers. But he's like... Tim Tebow, he's always good for a lot of rushing yards, ton of rushing touchdowns, uh, and get more, much more yardage than Tebow. That said, he's playing Houston, who I believe has the number three and four ranked pass and run defense. So uh, I don't see it. This is going to be a tough week for Carolina, even facing T.J. Yates, who looks good. I ex- I expect them kind of be behind in this, and Newton might have to. He might get a lot of garbage. Is where I'll get this pick wrong. He'll rush for a lot of garbage yards. And he is third in the listener league with 321 points behind Breeze, who has 327, and Rodgers, who has 365. Amazing. I mean, we talk a lot about how picking your quarterback isn't that important because the best one to the 10th best one isn't a huge, huge difference. That said, he's probably a lot of people's reasons for being in their playoffs this year because he probably took him in the 10th round or picked him up the as a The 10th best quarterback this year in the listener league is Mark Sanchez. He has 223 points. How many How many did Newton have? 321. So it's about 100 less or about – that's significant, I suppose. That's like eight points a week. But uh, my running back this week, I just talked about how average I think he is, is Mendenhall. This might be a cop-out because he's been somewhat disappointing all year. He does have – a handful of he'll probably end with double digit touchdowns, but he plays San Francisco. Nobody can run on San Francisco, so I don't expect Mendenhall, who is not not exactly a home run threat. Let's play a quick game. Okay, I'll give you a guy. You tell me if he scored more or less fantasy points based on listener league scoring. Okay, which is basically a PPR league. Okay, more or less than Mendenhall. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. First guy. Jonathan Stewart. That's got to be less. Nope. Really? He has 156, and Mendenhall has 143. Wow. Um, Roy Halu. That's got to be close. Halu's had a couple big weeks. I'll say Mendenhall has more, though. Nope. Halu has more. Wow. 157 to 143. I hate you for Mendenhall hasn't gone far enough, apparently. How about DeMarco Murray in limited action? Wow. He only played – he had like three big weeks. That's got to be less, right? Nope. Murray has more. <laughs> I'm terrible at that. And he had more yards – he has more yards rushing. He had 895 yards rushing. Mendenhall is 710. He had like 500 in his first two games though, didn't he? Yeah. Pierre Thomas or Richard Mendenhall? <laughs> I guess I'll say Thomas. He played all year. Yep. Thomas has one more point. So that's how bad he's been. Right. Mendenhall, who's a guy you probably had to draft – Second Early in the second round, round yeah. or something somewhere around there, he's been he's garbage. He's he's on a good team and he gets a lot of chances to score, but he's a really really average player. B 
Beanie Wells has been better this year. Willis McGahee has been better. Mendenhall has Green. been hurt, but so has Michael Bush has been better. Right, Michael Bush wasn't a starter. Um, let me just see how many games because Mendenhall has been hurt, but I don't think he's missed a lot of games. I know Redmond was a hot pickup one week. That's the only reason I say that. So he probably missed at least one. Full I think he start. only missed one game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he sucks. Yeah, he's very. He's always been a very average yards per carry guy. He's just on a good team with a good defense, so they're always in games, and he's always a threat for touchdowns. But, yeah, he's not that good. Uh, my last sit this week, wide receiver Deshaun Jackson. Maybe I'm uh, going with the Revis Island thing again. Maybe I'm going with the idea that they're done. The Eagles are done. If it's not mathematically done, it's about as close to it as it can be. And I don't see, I don't look at them and think they're a very mentally strong team. So I expect them to pack it in and uh, wait for 2012. And Deshaun Jackson may be, as far as not being mentally strong, the leader of the not being mentally strong teams. And uh, I don't expect big things from him this week. I want to ask you something about wide receivers. Okay. In a PPR league, tell me who the top five point getters are. Wes Welker probably is still up there somewhere. He's number one. And this is counting tight ends or just receivers? Um, it looks like it's just receivers. Wow. So Wes Welker. Uh, is Roddy White up there? Roddy White is ninth. No. Nope. Yeah, receivers are tough this year. Um, hmm. I'm drawing a total There's blank. one really obvious Larry one. Fitzgerald? Uh, he's seventh. Oh, right outside it. Really obvious one I'm missing. He was uh, the first receiver taken in most. Oh, leagues. Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson is two. And I, I won't torture you. Three is Steve Smith. Okay. Four is Victor Cruz. Wow. And five is Percy Harvin. Wow. The so, crazy thing this year, if any uh, drafting a wide receiver other than Calvin Johnson early, which is something I tend to like to do, especially in PPR leagues, was a total bust. Andre Johnson killed me in a league this year. Uh, who else would have been drafted that highly? Reggie Wayne was up there, and he's probably killed people in leagues this year. Yeah, Reggie Wayne is nowhere to be found. Uh, Mike Wallace is sixth. Larry Fitzgerald was seventh. Mike Jennings. Wallace had a great start, and he's really cooled off. Jennings is eight. Roddy White is nine. Jordy Nelson is ten. Antonio Brown is 11. Yeah, so you got guys like Antonio Brown, who hasn't even been the starter all year. Jordy Nelson. Teams like that... It seems like the better the quarterback you have, the more unpredictable the receiving numbers are going to be. Uh, especially in Green Bay, it's maddening to start a receiver, just like uh, with the Saints. Yeah, the Saints. Is Other tough. than Jimmy Graham, there's. I mean, Colston's the closest to a sure yeah, thing. Yeah, Colston's just about in the. He's in the top twenty, so he, you should be starting him as a. Oh, for two. sure, yeah. right? But he's got 176 points this year. But as and far that's as missing time, as far as being a sure thing for eight catches, like maybe you'd expect if he were on a different team, maybe he spreads all those to Sproles or Graham or Henderson or Meacham. It's just a tough team to call. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the very last update for this season of the Listeners League killed me not to get the buy. Yep, I defeated Don last week in one of the playoff matches, one fifty nine to one fifty two. At least we showed up. It was and a high-scoring y- game. Listen to this. All four playoff teams scored above 150 points. Wow. I had the most, 159. The other winner, we are Penn State, had the second most, 157. And then the two losers had 151 and 152. Remember we said this is like the closest league we've ever been in? Yeah. It's, it's continued to be really close. Both playoff games were within 
six or seven points. What's nice about that is, like you said, in a, sta- in a standard, this league's a little bit different because you have that one extra flex. But in a standard league, you usually have one flex, and a high score is like 120. And for everyone to put up 150, that's impressive. Uh, this week in the semifinals, it's the backspaces, which is me versus Gordon Fitchsticks, which is Jimmy Browley. And in the other semifinal, it is uh, we are Penn State versus the Pittsburgh Feelers. Pittsburgh Feelers have been the best team all year. They're the number one seed. They had the most points for, the most wins. Um, so they're definitely a favorite. Uh, I, based on the projections, I'm a favorite in my game against Gordon Fishsticks, who had a one-game lead over me in the uh, division. So we'll see how it plays out. If someone besides me wins this league, they will be part of three things in Episode 1, Season 1. There you go. Or Season 2, assuming schedules work out. Yep. All right, we're going to take another break and be back with Stuart Mandel to preview the 2011-2012 bowl season. Our next guest is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and is a graduate of Northwestern University. In 2007, he released his first book, Bulls, Poles, and Tattered Souls, tracking the chaos and controversy that reign over the college football industry. In 2008, he earned his first and second place honors for his work in the Football Writers Association of America's annual writing contest. He has worked for the Cincinnati Inquirer, ABC Sports Online, and ESPN The Magazine. Today, he is a senior writer at SA.com, covering the national college football beat and college basketball. He also contributes features for Sports Illustrated. Be sure to listen to his podcast called The Mandel Initiative. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Stuart Mandel. How are you doing today, Stuart? Good to you, and how are you? Doing really good. Uh, excited to be talking to you again. Um, I think last time we talked, it was right about the beginning of the college football season, so a lot has happened since. But the reason I was really excited to have you today is because it feels like we're at the beginning of what is the college bowl season and i think that and you mentioned this in your mailbag yesterday that kind of the luster of the idea of a college bowl season seems to be diminishing with each passing year yeah i mean the you know the the, the original concept of bowl games is is uh you know not reflected i think in a lot of what you see now in you know certainly um like the bowls we're seeing this weekend, the New, New Mexico Bowl and the um, Idaho Potato Bowl. I mean, these these are just television programming, three hours on a, on a Saturday. Um, I think what made the bowls great in their heyday, and, and you still see to some extent, is that they were spectator events and fans could travel and, you know, around the holidays and kind of make a mini vacation out of going and seeing their favorite team. And, and many still do that. You know, Wisconsin and Oregon fans will flood the Rose Bowl and, uh, Kansas State fans have eaten up their Cotton Bowl tickets, and, and you see that around various places. But then you look at a game like the Sugar Bowl between two big-name teams, Michigan and Virginia Tech, that's being played in the middle of the week after New Year's, and and uh, Michigan, to some extent, Michigan and Virginia Tech much more so are struggling to, to sell their tickets for it. And that's you know a depressing thing to see if you're uh, if you remember the days when these were the destination games in the postseason. You mentioned that the uh, the Sugar Bowl is having some trouble selling tickets, and uh, that game's being played on January third in the in the Superdome as always. But is part of the problem the 
the teams that they picked, I, I know that that was the kind of most shocking decision when it came to selecting the teams is, you know, they passed up a couple of top 10 teams to pick Michigan and Virginia Tech. How and why did that happen? Just so maybe listeners can understand, maybe fans of the teams that were passed over, why it is that we have a Michigan-Virginia Tech matchup in the Sugar Bowl. Well, it's definitely, the Virginia Tech's half of it is definitely puzzling. Um, you know, I think, you know, if you remember going that final weekend, you know, most people were projecting Michigan-Houston, because if Houston had gone undefeated, they would have been guaranteed that spot. But when they lost to Southern Miss, they kind of threw things up in the air for that second spot. And uh, but the teams they could have taken would have included two top ten teams in Kansas State and Boise State. And I think most people would agree that a Michigan-Boise State game would be very intriguing on a national level. People love watching Boise State go up against the big boys. But the Sugar Bowl is, you know, kind of an old school, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, um, you know, the bowl industry is based very much on cronyism with the major conferences. And um, I think Virginia, they've had Virginia Tech not a game before. Um, they obviously want to maintain a relationship with the ACC. They're always looking out for their future, and, and these are the people they need to please. And I think that's basically what it just came down to. They they have a better relationship with Virginia Tech and the ACC than they do with um, the Big 12 or certainly with Boise State. So, unfortunately, you know, a factor like that ends up taking precedent over what the fans might actually want to see. Now, Boise State being skipped over for the Sugar Bowl means that they're going to be playing in the Las Vegas Bowl against Arizona State on December 22nd. Is there a bigger... Is there a bigger quote unquote loser in all of the way the Bulls have settled, you know, kind of sorted out than Boise State? And what does a drop off like that cost a team like Boise State in terms of finances? Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing for a team like that is that, you know, if you're not picked for the BCS, then you're pretty much um, beholden to whatever contracts your conference has with Bulls. And the Mountain West is not obviously a, a conference that the, the big time Bulls are dying to do business with, so the best deal they have is the Las Vegas Bowl. Uh, I don't know the exact amount of how much that cost the conference. I think, um, you know, I know when Houston lost, the figure that was being thrown out was $9.8 million. Um, I think it's about double. It's not what, 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 like, the Big Ten gets for their automatic berth, but it's more than what you get for a large berth. And I don't know exactly what the Vegas Bowl pays out, but it's probably closer to a million. So it's a pretty significant difference, not necessarily for the school, because the the money goes to the conference and gets split up. Um, so, but yeah, big deal for the conference. Let's put aside the BCS games for a second, and I'm wondering: is there some matchups that you're really looking forward to in maybe the second or third tier bowl games? The games that are going to take place between December 17th and you know January 1st. Is is there some games in there that you are looking forward to matchup wise that could be really entertaining? Uh, th- three hours for fans to sit down and watch? Well, you know, the fun thing about bowls is you never know which ones will. I mean, you can end up watching the Temple Wyoming game. It could turn out to be a, you know, exciting last-second game. You never know. But um, I'm looking forward to um, the Alamo Bowl between Washington and Baylor. Obviously, uh, the Heisman Trophy winner is playing in that game now. And, you know, probably in his last college games, the last chance to get to see Robert Griffin. But Washington's got some exciting players, too, with Keith Price, a quarterback, and Chris Boker, running back. It'll probably be a very high-scoring game and a very fun game to watch. Um, I think the an underrated one might actually be the Texas A&M Northwestern game just because 
Um, both these teams have great quarterbacks and exciting offenses and no defenses, and they blow leads all the time. And uh, So it should be a fun back-and-forth kind of game. And then um, Cincinnati-Vanderbilt in the Liberty Bowl. Uh, Vandy, you know, people usually discredit them automatically, but uh, this is one of their best teams they've had in terms of a very good defense, a good running back, a solid young quarterback, and Jordan Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers' brother. Um, they're playing it since the 19th, 9 and 3, but I fully expect Vanderbilt to, to be, you know, even in that game, if not win it. All right, let's get into it a little bit and talk about some of these BCS games. I, when, I, when I saw the schedule overall, I was thinking that this is maybe one of the better years for the non championship BCS games. I think that the Rose Bowl is a really interesting contrast of styles between maybe a defensive minded Wisconsin, although. Probably sh- probably not even that true. And uh, Oregon, who's obviously likes to put points on the board. What are your thoughts on the Rose Bowl matchup? And if you were uh, if you were going to put some jelly beans on it, which way do you think you might see this matchup uh, closing off? I agree. It's a very it's much like last year's TCU Wisconsin game. It's a contrast of you know uh, Oregon likes to get up and down the field as fast as possible. Um, and Wisconsin is a slow-it-down, uh, physical, grind-it-out team. Um, you know, I think the Oregon, or people, you know, look at Oregon, they see the losses to LSU and Auburn and Ohio State and then either the Bulls or the early season. They think, well, they just get exposed when they get to outside of Pac-12. But all those teams have very dominant defensive lines that, that slow down Oregon. I don't think Wisconsin does. I don't think they're a great defensive team. They have great offense, obviously. But if you watched the Big Ten Championship game, you know, that was a shootout. So I don't really like Wisconsin's chances of slowing down Michael James, D'Anthony Thomas, and that explosive Oregon offense. The other one that is also on January 2nd that seems like a really great game is Stanford versus Oklahoma State. Uh, these are the two teams that are probably most they're the two teams that you could make a case could be in the national championship game, more so Oklahoma State, obviously, than Stanford. But these two teams will get to play each other. Andrew Luck, uh, obviously, probably his last college game, much like Robert Griffin III. What intrigues you about the Fiesta Bowl matchup, and do you lean one way or another between Oklahoma State and Stanford? Well, like you said, it's a chance for Oklahoma State. I mean, it's too late now, but it's a chance for them to kind of show the nation why they maybe should have gotten that second bid in the national championship game. And I think their defense is, doesn't get enough credit. I mean, it's statistically not ranked very well, so I understand. But there's a lot of good players on that Oklahoma State defense. They, they force turnovers. Uh, but they don't, they don't, in the Big 12, they don't face an offense like Stanford. They don't face an NFL pro-style quarterback like Andrew Luck uh, or even a, a running game as traditional as theirs. So it's an interesting matchup that way. Um, but I do still favor Oklahoma State in that, uh, you know, Stanford has, has done, is admirable what they've done, but they are, they're not brimming with athleticism. And, um, you know, Andrew Luck throws to his tight end a lot. Um, and then their defense, if you watch the Oregon game, just really couldn't match up with Oregon at all. So, uh, you, you gotta like, uh, the, the odds that, uh, Justin Blackman and Brandon Wheaton and Joseph Randall, that all those, uh, skill guys in Oklahoma State are probably going to have their way to Stanford's defense. Is there any scenario where the AP might consider awarding their half of the national championship to Oklahoma State? No, I think there's been some talk of, you know, if LSU loses a very close game, a, a three-point game, that maybe they would get a share. They probably will get some first-place votes from people feeling like 
Um, well, they, they beat them the first time on the road. Um, just because they lost a close game in the neutral field in the national title doesn't mean they should drop. But, you know, for the most part, this is now universally considered the national championship game. There really wasn't much controversy. Or, I mean, there was some angst over the all-SEC part of it, but, you know, Alabama was a consensus number two in all the polls. So there's not really a, this isn't really a scenario that sets up for a split championship. Let's talk about the national championship game, LSU versus Alabama. Obviously, we've seen the game one time before in Alabama in November. It was 9-6, to six, I believe, in overtime. Uh, what makes these te- two teams so close? You're looking at the two best defensive teams in the country, bar none, and um, makes it very hard to move the ball. Uh, I also think that in that first game, it was so built up as you know the so-called game of the century. There was so much riding on it because obviously at that time, uh, you know, you couldn't have known that you could lose the game and still make the national title. That I think both teams play extremely conservative, and I think in the national title game you'll see them open things up a little bit more. I don't know what more Alabama can do because they don't have they don't have guys like Tyree Matthew and uh, Ruben Randall. They just don't have um, playmakers like that. They have Trent Richardson, and he's their bread and butter. Um, he actually did well against um, LSU the first time. Just they couldn't get into into the red zone and force those long field goal tries. So, but I think the game will be a little more open. It's still obviously going to be a defensive game, and it's just going to come down to who can you know bust through that defense and make some big plays, or maybe some special teams, whether it's Matthew or whether it's um, Marquise Mays for Alabama, maybe returning a punt for a touchdown. One of the great things about last year's national championship game was being able to sit back and watch Cam Newton, knowing that he was going to be one of the top picks in the NFL draft. And I think the majority of the country knows about the Honey Badger, as you mentioned just a second ago, and also Trent Richardson, who was a Heisman Trophy finalist. For people who aren't as familiar with the SEC or maybe college football in general and will just be tuning into the national championship game because it is, who are some of the top players in LSU and Alabama that will definitely be playing on Sundays in the near future? Practically the entire Alabama starting defense will be playing in the NFL, and many of them will be drafted in the first round next year. That's not an exaggeration. This is, this is one of the most talented defenses we've seen in college football in a long time, um, and, it, and it shows in the stats. They're number one in everything. Um, Courtney Upshaw, their linebacker, uh, like a kind of a James Harrison type. He's a hybrid pass-rushing uh, linebacker, Dante Hightower. You know, prototypical middle linebacker. Drake Kirkpatrick's an excellent cover corner. Mark Barron is probably the best safety in the country. So all those guys are going to be very highly regarded. LSU is just a little different in that they're younger. So not a lot of these I mean, it's kind of scary actually for next year's college football, but not a lot of those guys will be in the draft this year. One that will be probably Morris Claiborne, who won the um, Jim Thorpe Award and several national uh, defensive player of the year awards. And that tells you something right there that, you know, Matthew obviously is the highest and finalist, but the other cornerback is the guy who's considered the uh, the best cover corner on their team. Now, LSU has uh, gone through the season using two quarterbacks on and off. Is there one of the two that will play more than the other in the national championship game? Will they try to just focus on one, or will we see them bringing uh, multiple quarterbacks in and out of the game as the game progresses? It's funny. It's, it seems like a Jordan Jefferson team now, which is amazing because in that first LSU Alabama game, um, you know, Jarrett Lee started and probably right. would have continued if not for the two interceptions. And Jordan Jefferson took over from that game, and 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 they just went with him from there. And it it does change their offense in that he's more mobile, 
and they're able to run the option a little bit. So, you know, I don't know if we'll see much of Jarrett Lee in that game unless Jefferson really struggles. Do you have a prediction? Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I lean toward LSU just because I, I, they've, they've had such an amazing season, and they haven't really shown any reason to pick against them. It's possible that Bama, with that dominant defense, will just completely shut them down. Um, and the other thing I would add is that national championship games rarely play out um, the way you know we rarely see the teams play the way they played during the season because it's so far removed. It's right. January ninth. Um, you know who would have thought Auburn Oregon would be a twenty two nineteen game last year? So it's hard to say exactly how it'll play out. But LSU has given me no um, no reason to pick against them at this point. You mentioned that LSU is a young team. They're going to have a lot of players coming back next year, so I'm sure that they'll be, if not the consensus number one going into the season, they'll be in the top five. Who are some other teams that we can watch during the bowl season that are going to bring back a lot of players and will be considered top five teams next preseason? Well, I think Oregon will be uh, in much the same boat, and I know Michael James will probably turn pro, but you know, you see how many running backs they have in that stable, and their defense is, is you know, mostly underclassmen. So, you know, the Oregon team you see in the Rose Bowl, you'll probably see most of those guys next year. Uh, well, USC is not playing in a bowl, so you won't get to see them, but they're, they're right. probably expected to be near the top of the polls next year. Um, I think, you know, people should probably watch that Ohio State-Florida Gator Bowl because that Ohio State defense will come back almost in its entirety next year, only with Urban Meyer as the coach now. And I think, they're, you know, unless the NCAA comes down with heavy sanctions, and I'm not expecting them to, they're going to go from 6-6 six and six this year to right back in Big Ten and national title conversation next year. And uh, in Michigan, you know, they pretty hoped it tremendous job getting 10 wins out of them this year. Denard Robinson will be back next year, and, and uh, Fitzgerald Tucson will be back next year. You know, you'll see a lot of those guys next year. Let's talk a little bit about the Heisman Trophy. You mentioned this in the mailbag, and it's been pretty interesting to realize that, you know, the winner, Robert Griffin III, is someone who anyone who's a fan of the Big 12 has basically been watching since he was an 18-year-old kid. Uh, he started as a freshman at Baylor. Um, and, you know, Baylor is not a team that really was ever in the national championship conversation, and it's really rare for a player like that to end up winning the Heisman. But it seems like this year, more than any year in the past, uh, they really focused on giving the award to the most outstanding player. Do you think that that's a trend that will continue into the future, or do you think that it was just one of those years where, you know, LSU and Alabama, who are playing in the national championship game, even though they had representatives there, you know, they weren't really serious people who were going to win the award. Is is that why we've seen a, a three-loss player sneak in there, or do you think that this is something, a change in the way the voting is going to go for the Heisman in the future? I think every year is different. I mean, it was only two years ago that Mark Ingram won it, basically because he was the best player on the best team. Um, any year that I thought either Toby Gerhardt or Ndamukong Sue were more deserving. Um, and then you've got years like last year, Cam Newton just blew the rest of the field away. So, you know, it's all relative compared to who's in the field. But you made a, a good point in that, you know, I think one reason the door opened for uh, Robert Griffin is that the number one team, LSU, did not have, a, you know, a quarterback or a running back that was uh, – you know, realistically in the mix. They had Matthew, but that was kind of an 11th hour thing, and um, it's hard for a defensive player to win it. So so once you once the national title team's guys are out of it, uh, then it can open the door for a guy from a three-loss three team. But, you know, it was, it was definitely um, 
it showed some sophistication on the part of the voters. Also, Baylor did a great job promoting him. You know, so many um, subjective little things come into play with the hires and just having a nickname like RG3 gets you attention. And then, of course, I just, the most important thing, really the highest and it's such a what have you done for me lately thing, it changes by the week. And I think in the end, that last week ends up determining it. And uh, he played, Griffin played, and Luck and Richardson didn't. And that put him over the top. So, you know, if it had been the other way around, you know, if, if Alabama had made the SEC title game and Richardson played well, probably he would have won the trophy. It really comes down to that. You know, I wonder if, if you think this, you know, that Oklahoma game where uh, Griffin was able to have his kind of signature moment in the national spotlight on ABC. You know, I wonder what would have happened if, if Bob Stoops wouldn't have called a timeout there and Oklahoma, let's say, won that game in in overtime. Do you think that would have changed the outcome of the Heisman Trophy race? If, yeah, I think the Oklahoma game was his Heisman moment because, you know, remember, it was it was really Andrew Lux to lose all through, you know, up through mid-November. And then when he had a bad game against Oregon, suddenly the door was open for somebody else to step up, and he, he did that next week with the Oklahoma win. So... If he doesn't have that moment, if he doesn't have that last-second touchdown, they knock off. Baylor gets their first ever win against Oklahoma. Yeah, he's probably not going to win the award. <laughs> it's unbelievable how you know such a uh, you know a decision by a Oklahoma coach could be, go so far potentially in in deciding the Heisman Trophy. The sportscaster is here with Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter at sl mandel. And um, I guess I just want to close off and ask you one more thing. And uh, that is, I read it in your, and when I read the bio in the beginning, I mentioned that you, you, you do some college football and you also do college basketball. What is it like as a writer to kind of transition from the end of college basketball football season and, and get into covering other sports? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I, it, it, my percentages have gone down. Over there. I mean, I used to be more half and half. Now I probably do 80% football. I don't really do any basketball until after the championship game. But you know, I'm 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 starting to try to get back into it, and but it's tough. It really is. Um, they overlap, and the real heart of football, the you know, the stretch run, if you will, coincides with those early season, uh, you know, Maui Invitational and and preseason NIT and that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know. I give all the credit in the world to people. I mean, there's plenty of other people that do it. Pat Forty comes to mind from Yahoo, who cover both sports and know them inside and out. I'll fully admit that I have to play catch up, and uh, and I I pretty much cram right before the NCAA tournament, like I guess a lot of people do when they fill out their brackets. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like almost maybe the country kind of shifts at the end of football season, which you know now ends in February, where we start to then try to pay a little bit more attention as the uh, conference championship games and things like that come up to get ready, as you said, to fill up all those brackets. But again, it's Stuart Mandel. You can find him at Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com. Thank you very much for your time, and enjoy the bowl games. All right, thank you. Thanks, bud. All right, thanks to Stuart Mandel. I also want to thank our other guests today, Richard Deitch and Mike Pereira. Also, I want to thank all our guests that made Season 1 a success. We started real small. We've grown... I guess we're still small, but we've, <laughs> we've grown, and we've done it with the help of guys like Lee Jenkins. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't know how small or large we are by our guests. Our guests no, are world-class. John Wertheim and Peter King and 
Dave Damashek, uh, Adam Schefter, Greg Wyshynski, just all the people who have made the season great. Can't thank you enough, and I expect big things to come in season two. Uh, I want to update a few things. One, way back episode number 37, Don and I picked some over-unders for the NFL season. I want to update those. Uh, I could do all right here. My first one was the Bengals under 5.5. I've already lost that one. The second one was the Bills under 5.5. I have a chance at that one. The Bills are 5-8. and eight. If they lose out, they'll be 5-11. and 11. I'll win. If they get a win, I'll lose that one. As a Bills fan, I would love for them to lose out. Yeah. And they, There's no they, point in them winning any they games. They have that year. feeling to them. Yeah. Although this week might be a tough the one. Best, yeah. Because so it's the Dolphins at home. And yeah. JP Lossman, and <laughs> they might be motivated to win that game. Right. Uh, the Lions over seven and a half. I've already won that one. They're eight and five, and I had the Jaguars under six and a half, which I said was my best one. They're four and nine, so they would need to go seven and nine to beat me. That's yeah, not happening. So that's not going to happen. I don't think. So I could do as well as three and one. I could do as bad as one and three. Kind of looks like I'm going to go two and two because my guess is the Bills are going to win somewhere. Win one game. Yeah. All right, Don lost with the Bengals with me. He's gonna he's facing the same predicament with the Jaguars, so that looks pretty good. He also has another one that looks really good: Washington under six and a half. That's what he said was his best one. Uh, they're four and nine, so they need to win out. Probably not going to happen to beat them. And he has the Chiefs, which is another good one, uh, under seven and a half. They're five and eight. Um, I hit him over though. I think you said. Oh, you did have them over. My yeah. bad. So you're going to need them to win out. I thought they would take – from what I remember, I thought they would take a step backwards, but not as significant as right. that. But so you could, that'll be tough. You're going to look like 2-2 two and two probably, but you could go 3-1. and one. Yeah, the one thing I've learned from this year, uh, I'm bad at projecting on a week, weekly basis, but that's easier than projecting on a long-term basis. As if we revisited my baseball predictions, they would probably be even worse. Well, we're going to revisit another prediction, Okay, and that is our BCS championship game predictions. Okay. Don picked Oregon over Oklahoma. Nope. Neither of them made it. Nope. I picked Alabama over Oklahoma. Alabama is in the game, so they yeah. could still be the national championship game. So yep. uh, I'm alive there, I guess. Uh, another thing is our Super Bowl predictions. Uh, Don picked Atlanta. I feel like I was on the versus spot. Baltimore. Baltimore. I still like Baltimore. And I picked the Saints and Patriots. So we'll see about those as the months go on. Yeah, I'm not a, Atlanta's no good. <laughs> that's that's a bad pick. All right, recapping pick four last week and closing out our season one records. I was two and two. I had the Seahawks over the Rams, won that one. I had the Saints over the Titans, won that one. Lost the Cowboys over the Giants. Still not sure how <laughs> the Cowboys blew that game. They did. And I had the Panthers beating the Falcons. That game was twenty-three to six Panthers at halftime. And yeah, I like that didn't too. Win. Yeah, I called that straight up for something else. Yep, they blew it. So I finish season one of pick four ninety-six and ninety-six, which I feel good about because so many of those losses are bold predictions. <laughs> right. I was thinking that when you were talking about changes, we got to make like a maybe like a pick four and then the bold prediction is like a bonus segment because we get killed on the, on yeah. the stupid bonus or the bold pick prediction. four is something we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks we'll see if it returns in its exact form or how it returns if it returns at all but it's definitely something we're talking about uh don went one and three last week finished with three straight one and three weeks kind of brutal record 
He had the Packers minus 12 over the Raiders. That was his win. He lost the Cowboys game as well. He also lost the Steelers, did not minus cover 12. against the Browns, and he had the Vikings to win outright. He had a chance they at that should've. one. They should have. They should have won outright, He could have won it, but they didn't. He yep. finishes 89-105. and 105. Yuck. All right. We're going to start with our first four picks of season four, season two record. The game of the week this week is pretty obvious. Uh, it's a primetime game. It's a Monday night game, and it's a, it's a big game for both teams. Maybe not so much the 49ers, but the Steelers at the 49ers. Uh, I said this when the 49ers played Baltimore, but I don't like the 49ers against other teams with good defenses, mostly because chances are that team's going to have a better offense in this case the Steelers definitely have a better offense the only caveat to this could be if Roethlisberger doesn't play right 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 now the Steelers are a three-point underdog I will take them plus the three points on the road all day if Roethlisberger plays I'm going to take the 49ers just because I feel like I want the Steelers to win so badly to help the Saints buy week chances (laughs) that it's just not going to work out (laughs) I got lucky last week with the Cardinals getting an upset come from behind victory over the 49ers I'm worried that Roethlisberger isn't going to play. It's going to be harder for him to play after all that swelling and all that <clears throat> adrenaline I think got him through. I'm going to assume he doesn't play. They're also definitely not going to have James Harrison right. who's suspended. So I'm going to take the 49ers and lay the three points. Real quick aside, uh, that division, the NFC West, has been a laughing stock for a long time. It, it looks pretty good at times now. I mean, you got the 49ers who are It seems like established. The, the Seahawks and the Cardinals, Cardinals. And the teams on the rise. Right. And yeah. Don't look back at my blog because I think I liked St. Louis other than their schedule this year, but they've been pretty embarrassing. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what changes they make. And since they've been so embarrassing, they have a chance to improve their team with an early draft. Pick. Right, right. So, I mean, that division for the laughing stock that it is. Could uh, be on the rise. Could be on the rise. And, and it could be the AFC West that turns into the next laughing stock division. Right, or even the NFC East. I mean, there's just that maybe isn't the laughing stock. It'll always be perpetually overrated because of the right. It's just a lot of average teams there. Okay, my host choice. Did you give your prediction? You did. My host choice this week. uh, I'm going to go with another road favorite. Actually, my first one was an underdog, but I'm going to take the Patriots minus seven at the Broncos. Uh, The last time the Broncos have played, I know they're eight and one or whatever in their Tebow era. Uh, this is a 4:15 game on CBS, by the way. Uh, Tom versus Tim. Tom versus Tim. The last time they've played an offense near the caliber of the Patriots was, was the when they played the Lions, and they got crushed 45 to 10 with Tebow. With Tebow, correct. So, and that was also at home. Uh, give me the Patriots minus the seven. I don't think this is going to be close, and I'm not a Tebow hater. I, I just want to preface it by Neither saying I'm not are. waiting for him to lose yeah. or anything. But nope. this isn't going to be his day. All right, I'm going to continue to ride the Saints. Surprisingly, they're only a seven-point underdog. Again, I think that that's not enough. Favorite. Favorite. Uh, The Vikings played well against the Lions last week, but the Saints are a much better team than the Lions. And the Saints' defense is made to confuse rookie quarterbacks. Yeah. And I just really like their chances against the Vikings. It's a 1 o'clock game on Fox on Sunday. Is uh, Webb going to be the starter again? I I don't know. I mean, he was the better guy, but your future is with... Ponder. Ponder. Yeah. All right, my worldwide leader pick, I'm going to go with the other primetime football game that's Sunday night, uh, the Ravens at the Chargers. It's also a game that has a lot of significance. The Chargers could stay alive with a win. The Ravens are only a one-point favorite here. Again, I'm going to take the road favorite and go with the Ravens. I 
I don't see it. This isn't Phillip Rivers' year, and playing a good defense like the Ravens, with a, and it's a team that their offense is good enough to do enough for their defense, and Ray Rice should have a great day, and I, one point isn't enough. So I'm going to take the Ravens minus one. I'm with you. Bad spread. Yeah. One is not enough. I like the Ravens all day in this one. All right, my last bold prediction of the year, and mathematically guys like Aaron Schatz would tell me I'm probably crazy here, so this is about as bold as it gets, but I alluded to it last week. I'm going to say Seattle makes the playoffs. They have a brutal schedule as far as they play. uh, This week they play Chicago, who I think they match up actually pretty well as long as Haney's the quarterback. He will be. He will be. And next week they play San Francisco. That's the tricky one. That's the tough one. But, again, it's kind of strength versus strength. Seattle's strength might be their defense. Uh, If they can just keep that game close, maybe get a defensive TD, let Marshawn Lynch kind of do his thing that he's been doing this year, there's no way they lose the last game of the season, who I can't remember who it is, but it's not nearly the caliber of those two teams. The Pirates. (laughs) Yeah. But I think 9-7. and I think someone's going to get in at 9-7 and in the NFC. And why not Seattle? All right, I'm going to stick with what I've been doing the last few weeks, and that's making flipping the spread. The Eagles, for some reason, are a three-point favorite over the Jets. I don't buy it at all. No. I'm going to lay three points, take the Jets, game Sunday at 4.15 on CBS. Sounds good. All right. Again, it's been a great season. I'm really excited that we're doing this. I want to thank our parents. <laughs> yep. They've been a really big support, Don's dad and my mom especially. Yep. And I don't give my dad enough credit. He's a big listener, too. Right, and a caller at one point. Yep, and he wasn't <laughs> on the show and was pretty funny. So i got to thank them for their support. I want to thank our dogs, Colston, Lucan, and Maggie. Maggie. Uh, they've been a great support on the blog. <laughs> uh, also, I've got to thank all of our guests who've taken their time out to be on our little podcast. And I want to thank all the listeners who've taken time out of their day to download it, put it on their mp3 players or their ipads and just listening to it we've had a lot of fun doing it and we're gonna take it to the next level in season two anything you want to add or anyone you want to thank don uh thank bob for uh hosting us yep and being the technical building our website and uh no that's it see you next year i guess all right cue the hip one last time we will see you in 2012 all right